Listeners, welcome to Square Waves FM episode number 27. This uh, this episode is brought to you by the letter C in uh, honor of my very special guest today. Would you please introduce yourself? Sure thing. Hi, everyone. Hi, Squares. I'm uh, Chris Olson, uh, CGO Apps on Twitter. Very happy to be back, uh, honored to be back, and uh, great to be talking to you this morning, that's for sure. Oh yeah, back at you. Really happy to have you with us. And uh, you were just telling me that uh, you're uh, out in the field a little bit today, that you're you're uh, yeah. outdoorsy and overlooking some uh, some interesting scenery as we speak. Yes, indeed. So I'm in Puerto Rico. It's my second time here, first time to this side of the island. So I've been to Aguadilla and uh, Mayaguez and kind of the, I guess what's kind of the, the sleepier or the less hectic side. So I'm in San Juan today, which... Uh, which which is which is pretty nice. I'm, ocean is about 20 feet away, and I'm hoping that the uh, kind of um, exterior noises will add to the podcast instead of detract from it. Uh, it always and, has. Uh, tip of the hat to uh, Chris. Hi, Chris. You're Hi, out Chris. there. Um, hoping that uh, I can do as as well as you did in bringing the uh, sounds of uh, Greater Canada or whatever it was into the podcast. But if you hear a stray bird or a plane flying over or something, my apologies. Okay, no, no need to apologize. It uh, wouldn't be a Square Waves FM podcast without some kind of a cacophony going on in the background. Ah, okay, understood. <laughs> oh, that's cool. So I, I went to San Juan once briefly. Um, this was, I guess, geez, it was at least 10 years ago now. It was when my grandparents were celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary and invited uh, the extended family on a tropical cruise to the Caribbean and uh, oh, wow. thereabouts. So that was kind of cool. So my favorite, uh, you know, it had a bunch of ports of call, which were like, uh, if I can even remember, like St. Mar- Martin and uh, mm-hmm. St. Lucia, and I don't even remember all the little... They're, they're basically all the places that you visit when you're playing Sid Meier's Pirates. I, I, it's so funny, I was... Literally, just about <laughs> to say that I said coming down here, maybe not so much Puerto Rico. No, actually, that no, that was that was right in the middle of all that. But between Sid Meier's Pirates and Seven Cities of Gold, I always enjoy coming down this way because, especially flying over, I'm thinking, oh man, that was a really important port, or the Dutch. You know, you had to make sure that you know you were flying the appropriate flag when going into. So it's just so neat to come down here for that reason and. Uh, but uh, yes, all of us uh, um, gamers have a, a maybe a little more appreciation for you know for this entire kind of uh, part of the world, I guess. Yeah, it's all <laughs> historically interesting, changing hands yeah. a bunch of times. I was going to say, yeah, if uh, if you do happen to sink a Spanish galleon uh, before you fly back home, uh, make sure that you've got like the flag of uh, England or France or something on you. First. Boy, that's right. Or, or make sure I, I I kind of check my notes and see who's fighting with who and. Uh, you oh, yeah. know, uh, it's okay to come to port or not. Actually, as I look out, there's there's a pretty wicked sailboat out there, but it's uh, it, it's kind of colored like a galleon, but it's it's not anywhere approaching that large, of course. Oh well, yeah. might be carrying troops, might be carrying gold. The only way to Could know be. for sure is to Could fire be. your cannons at them. I was going to say, hopefully we don't have uh, it doesn't flip around and aim the cannons inboard here. We'll see. <laughs> Oh, I've got. I whenever I think of Puerto Rico now, I think of watching my sister when she was in this little school production of, uh, of, 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 oh no, of, of the Sharks and the Jets. 
What the hell oh, is this called? Oh, man. This is this is so funny. I've got a story about that. Go ahead. Sorry. Why oh, is it on the That's... tip of my tongue? I can't remember the name of the show now. Oh, it's uh, West Side Story. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah, that's no, it. No problem. That's my, that's my story. You go ahead. Okay, so it's so interesting. Actually, so the first time I came to Puerto Rico was a few months ago, and that was to uh, it was to Aguadilla, mm-hmm. and I there's um, it's kind of an interesting thing as kind of airspace and navigation has evolved. Uh, it's gone kind of away from the. Um, fixed base, kind of ground base stations that just radiate, you know, 360 degree signal because they, you have to keep them up and, you know, they're kind of an odd location. So you might be in really small towns. So there's just all the typical tropes that come along with, uh, you have to maintain, you have to maintain it. If it doesn't work, you put it out of service at, you know, then a whole bunch of, uh, routes or kind of determining the things that are based on that go out of service. It's just kind of a, a hassle. So with the satellite based stuff, really, as long as the satellites are are working, and I have to say most of the time they are. Um, in fact, I, I can think of maybe one time where you know there weren't enough satellites to kind of give adequate coverage one time in 15 years. So really, it's pretty darn reliable. But um, you can have just kind of a floating point in space, or it, it's defined tied to you know latitude and longitude. But there's nothing that has to produce a physical signal other than it has to be present in the computer database, if that makes sense, not to get too far off track here. But uh, with that, these ground-based stations would typically be named, they'd be a three-letter or, in some cases, a, a one- or a two-letter name. Uh, so it might be like a letter of the alphabet, let's say R. And in, uh, in Colombia, there's one that's, uh, I think it's a Rojo or, you know, just something that starts with R. In, mm-hmm. in the States or Canada, uh, the Toronto VOR, and that stands for uh, uh, VHF Omnirange, um, I think it's it's actually named um, uh, Yankee or YTP or Pearson or something like that. So that makes sense. So that's named after the airport or Big Shocker Toronto or, or something like that. Okay. Makes sense. Sometimes the three letters make sense. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes there's kind of a backstory to that. But um, as as the kind of satellite-based or GPS has become more and more common, they expanded out. They said, well, we're, we're going to quickly run out of three-letter Identifier. So let's make it five letters, and then we can kind of spell out a word or something that you still have to be able to pronounce, but you know you're a little more freedom in that number of combinations. I mean, unfortunately, you do end up with some unpronounceable things. You're like something that starts with an X, and you're like it'll be X L C R D. You're like what the you know. Mm-hmm. So you do you do get a little bit of that, but um, it, it did kind of allow for some creative freedom. So. Getting back to your West Side Story, uh, Puerto Rico story, and I, I really don't mean this to be offensive. My apologies if it is. Um, there's one not too far. I think it's, um, I think it's, it's north, north away. It's kind of almost the, like the boundary of the airspace, and it's jets, uh, you know, J-E-T-T-S or J-E-T-T-Z, I can't remember. And, you know, it's the, the sharks and the jets. That was the things uh, in West Side Story, the, you know, the American gang and the Puerto Rican gang, and they, that's the kind of the crux of the, uh, almost kind of like Romeo and Juliet with, you know, Montague's and Capulets, but kind of a, exactly. um, a, a more modern representation of that. So, you know, so I saw that on the way in, I, you know, 200 miles away coming in for the first time, oh, look at that, Jets, that must be because of uh, West Side Story. And I kid you not, that, that song, you know, um, I think a song is just called America, where it's na-na-na-na-na-na-man, right. I could not get that out of my head. I would find myself <laughs> whistling that Walking down the streets of Aguadilla, I'm like, I had better be careful. Thankfully, the place was very, very sleepy. But 
I'm like, this could, this could really bug somebody. I could not get, I, it was days after that, I just kept whistling that song or humming it. Yeah, that's not a very, that song is not very complimentary of Puerto Rico, No, is it? no, it certainly isn't, but boy, I just, it was just an earworm. It was, it was right up there with the <laughs> level of earworminess as the uh, Ken Allen Jeopardy copy protection music. I just oh, no. could not get rid of it. So, um, not so much a problem this time around, but it, it has popped in my head a few times. So, that's oh, pretty insidious. God. Oh, I just could not get rid of it. So, anyway, <laughs> kind of a... It's very interesting that you mentioned that. I, I wasn't even gonna 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 talk about that, but for um, your sister in the in the play there and West Side Story, boy, great, uh, very horribly difficult music. A great great show, great music. It's uh, probably I think it's Leonard Bernstein in his in his heyday, but uh, boy, mm-hmm. good luck good luck playing that. It's so fast, so complicated. Um, what a but it's it's a it's a good show, kind of timeless at least in in the U.S. I don't know about the rest of the world, but yeah. But, so anyway, yeah, totally. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I was wondering whether Puerto Rico—it's you said it's a protectorate or a territory or something of the USA. You know what? I, I probably have this wrong. I think protectorate is is our pl- places like Guam, and so I think it's actually—I um, want to say uh, they Puerto Rico is able to vote in the U.S. elections. So yeah, they have their president is Obama, isn't it? Yeah. So you know what? I think they're 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 in that in that uh, space where it's. Not quite statehood, but basically everything short of that. So I, I, I protectorate might have been, um, you know, kind of earlier in history. I really should know this, but I want to say that, I mean, they are, I believe they, I mean, if you want to call them like the 51st state or whatever, I think they're, they're just about there. Because I actually, um, but, but they do have sovereignty because actually the uh, walking in the front, the American flag and the Puerto Rican flag are actually at the same level and ah. boy, there are people who really get wrapped around the axle about that. There are a few states in the U.S. that are allowed to to do that but they have to have been prior countries. So Texas is a good example where Texas was its own kind of sovereign you know, place with Mexico and in Texas you'll notice that where the Texas flag and the U.S. flag will be at the same level whereas everywhere else the U.S. flag has to be higher which, boy, it's really silly that I know this stuff and I kind of feel like I... That's great. Chatted about this on a different podcast somewhere, but so yeah, so I think they're um, they do have that uh, that level of sovereignty, but for in, enjoying or you know whether it's a, a, a I don't know perhaps it's a detriment, perhaps it's good or bad, but for for better or for worse, they are um, inexorably tied to the U.S. That's so I, I presume you don't need a passport or any special license nope. or anything to travel there. It's considered like the contiguous yeah, United that's States. It. That, that's absolutely right. No passport, no uh, customs or anything like that. They, I think they can, the, the agriculture department can give you a little bit of a hard time, but they never have for me. So hmm. uh, just for, you know, since it's, you know, fairly tropical, bringing in exotic stuff, either way, they might kind of frown on that. But the, the notice for us is out there, but they've never, I've never seen anybody get, uh, get pulled aside. Perhaps if you were pulling a cart full of, uh, you know, iguana colored bananas or something it would be uh might uh, or or obvious uh exotic animals or it might uh, kind of draw the ire but uh, otherwise i think it's just it's it's as if you're traveling you know just in between states oh sure that actually <laughs> that actually brings up a, a bit of a non sequitur but a related story my wife and i had our honeymoon in uh the netherlands and belgium oh. 
Oh, very nice. Which is wow. awesome. Oh, it was such a phenomenally great trip. We had such a good time. Um, and we picked up a bunch of souvenirs, and on our way back, uh, I guess we had a few questionable items in our in our bag because when we were we, we came back to Canada via the United States. I think it was Detroit or Chicago or something. Okay. And um so that meant we had to go through American customs for that stopover and then uh. uh Canadian customs again when we got home. And so when we were coming from uh, Europe down to American customs, they looked into our bag and uh, or they used the x-ray on our bag and they said uh we uh, want to ask you some questions about some of the items in your bag, and we're kind of sweating it a little bit because oh uh, no, one or, well one or two, one of the items was a little bit more uh, uh, conspicuous than the others. We sure, were, we sure. Had, in addition to a couple of little souvenirs, we were bringing back a bong from oh. Amsterdam <laughs> <laughs> just because they were so cheap and cool there. Wow. So when we got to the United States uh, Customs, they uh, said, sir, we have to ask you about one of the items in your bag, and I'm kind of ready and preparing the answers in my head for it. I'm like, okay, shoot. And he said, sir, do you have any cheese in your bag? I'm like, oh, oh uh, no, yes, we do have kidding. cheese, as a matter of fact. Uh, and he's like, okay, can you <laughs> can you describe the cheese? So I said, <laughs> okay, it's like a Gouda cheese, and it's wrapped in wax. And he's like, is it completely covered in wax all over it and i said yes he said okay you're free to go <laughs> that was his only qualm with what we were bringing back so so here's here's this and you know this enormous probably brightly colored implement they don't care about that but not by golly not you will not bit. bring bad cheese to the u.s boy that's that is right. really uh that's a great story <laughs> <laughs> well then when we got to canada they had some some questions for our, our little kitchen utensil there but uh they said as long as you haven't used it for any illegal purpose then there's nothing keeping you from bringing stuff like that into canada gotcha so, well so that's hopefully that's our, my listeners are much more educated about such matters now beware the cheese but go ahead and bring back whatever paraphernalia you wish you know, it, it's funny. There were um, I used to uh, kind of one job ago. I used to go to Canada all the time. Um, ne- never got to the western part, but basically kind of draw a line from Edmonton all the way out to. Um, well, we we went to everything up, including Newfoundland. I didn't personally go to Newfoundland, but it was in our root structure. Mm. And there were a couple of spots where. And, and Dollars to Donuts, it was always the, because at like a big place like Edmonton or Toronto, you have both U.S. and Canadian customs for the purpose of preclearance. So it would be, mm. it's really strange how this works, but technically, if you were, you know, transiting back to the States, um, it would be considered U.S. territory for that little footprint of customs, which is really weird. But, yeah, that's right. Um, but boy, there were, Edmonton, I remember, they not not to out anybody, but boy, if you had any type of citrus, they would really flip out. Um, so don't bring your oranges, your lemons, your limes. It didn't matter. And I thought, you know, maybe maybe someone just has like a, a really likes oranges. But um, I flew with a guy who had uh, who had a bunch of limes. He was going to actually put together and make a, a huge pitcher of limeade and had grand plans for a kind of a hot summer day. And they took every single one of them, and I said, you know, it's it's rare that someone's not just going to tear into a lime and eat it. So um, <laughs> they must have had their reasons, but boy, it was uh, pretty obvious not to um, not to trifle with that. So you oh, know, ev- know. Well, everyone's um, kind of got their and it ranging from the guy just wants your apple to actually some sort of I don't want to denigrate it at all, but yeah, maybe some you know some sort of bug or or something that was that came in that really kind of drove some sort of policy where they had to watch it. So, you know, that's not something you want to mess with, at least not at work. So there you go. <laughs> Jeez. 
Brian? Hello? Oh, hello. Oh. Me and my damn mute button, I'm telling you. Oh, no, no problem. No so, problem. Uh, yeah, we, um, in uh, central Canada, where, uh, like, which is primarily the prairies, which is the rural part of the country prim- predominantly, um, they often have warnings about things like uh, insects or, uh, like, diseases for plants and stuff like that, and that's sure. why they're often very sensitive about yeah. uh, biological matter traveling from uh, foreign countries, or even from other provinces sometimes. Sure. I know in... Uh, uh, Manitoba, the province of Manitoba, they often have issues with insects that eat uh, the leaves of trees. They're like mm. foreign insects, and they eat the leaves of the local trees um, at, like voraciously, and they multiply quickly, and they uh, destroy all the foliage. And so the last time I, my, my uh, grandparents live in Winnipeg in Manitoba, so the last time I was there, all the trees were wearing these kind of uh, like they look like leather belts, sort of like the trees were dressed up in like a business oh. wear or something like that. Oh, but these wow. belts keep these uh, worms from crawling up the trunk and getting up into the trees. Oh, and wow. That was no all kidding. because of something that people uh, had shipped into the, the province. No, it's it's a huge problem. And, and I, I certainly um, you know want to pay that the appropriate amount of respect. I know um, I actually did a, a term paper in college about uh, exotic species. Got, you know, I had to. That's a whole other story, but I ended up in, uh, it was a great, great course, but I ended up in a marine biology class, um, you know, cue the Seinfeld reference. And he, so here I am, I'm, all right, got to do a term paper. And um, being from, you know, kind of around the Great Lakes for most of my childhood, I said, well, there, there were a couple of high-profile cases where, um, you know, Lake Michigan and, uh, and even, you know, up towards uh, like Superior and, and Ontario and whatnot, there's that St. Lawrence Seaway that basically you have a, a line up basically out to the ocean where, um, you know, you have ships that come in from all over the place. And uh, the big, one of the probably biggest problems was bilgewater. So a big, you know, a freighter or even a, you know, maybe a, anything, cruise ship, military ship, whatever, mm-hmm. would come in. And uh, so they'd, you know, they'd, they'd take on, a, you know, a certain amount of water in, let's just say, I don't know, somewhere, somewhere in Europe, and then discharge it, um, not even really trying to break the rules or be, or be bad, but you know, discharge that water in the, in the port wherever they are. And, um, you know, the, the example for the Great Lakes was zebra mussels. These things went just absolutely berserk. And I thought you would say that, yeah. Yeah, they like attach themselves to the hulls of ships and stuff. Yeah, didn't so they? yeah, so if they if they weren't present in Bilgewater, the other issue was you get barnacles and you know stuck to the to the ship, and and that was a whole other thing. So there's this constant battle, and uh, you know, kind of just the honor system of you know, please don't you know discharge your bilge water or try to get your you know clean the stuff off. But it's uh, you know, it's it's amazing how adaptable species are but boy zebra I mean, it's still a, a, a big problem there's some other kind of famous ones too there were those awful uh they looked like something out of the mind of a a horror movie creator those uh they're called lampreys these little oh almost, they're gross oh aren't they horrible oh look them up i don't even want to i mean it's google away it's it's bad but they would uh i want to say that was a lake erie i think it yeah it was the same sort of thing where they came in from somewhere and they would just really attach themselves to fish and like suck the blood dry so you'd get these fish that would float up to the top completely devoid of color and everyone right. thought oh it's just a pollution and they and they looked and they said no it's actually these little buggers so ugh. right anyway um but so yeah so certainly citrus and i'm i'm sure 
you know, Edmonton had their reasons and everyone was, was always, uh, you know, I, you know, I, I learned only did it once. I gave up my orange and said, you know, the guy was flying with, you know, kept forfeited his limes. And we said, well, lesson learned on that. So no, no citrus to Edmonton. And that was years ago. So that's probably, you know, probably old information. But Oh, I, I, I don't yeah. think they ever forgive you for stuff like that. Well, there, there was one guy in particular who was really, really, really happy to be at his job and would talk very loudly and everything <laughs> else. So I hope if he's still there, I hope he's still enjoying himself. That's all I have to say about that. And that was definitely on the U.S. customs side. Everybody in Canadian customs was generally very agreeable and, you know, good. So there you go. Oh, well, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Cool. Well, um, hope you're enjoying your layover and your view while we uh, continue the podcast then. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Good and stuff. And like I said, just holler if it gets too too loud, but I'm, I'm in a kind of a secluded spot right now, so hopefully it's okay. Nope, you're clear as a bell right now. Great. So you were—I guess you were probably in transit this uh, this past couple of days while Windows 10 was released to yeah, the, the masses. I sure was. So th- thanks for that. So I just—I saw just a little bit on that, and I've been, you know, trying to track uh, some of the other kind of news of the world. But uh, I know you were—you um, were kind of a, an early access or kind of a, one of the fortunate few to be. Uh, a beta tester, kind of from the from the beginning, is that right? Yeah, I was. Not even so few. I think there were a few million people oh, in the gosh. Windows Insider okay. program. They kind of opened the floodgates, and I think it was a smart idea because they collected and responded to all this feedback. Sure, sure. Good deal. Yeah, well, so, no, uh, ahead, do you plan to upgrade? No, you know, I am. Um, I, I, I'm kind of embracing my my march backwards, and in, in kind of this, uh, <laughs> it, it really. Uh, Kind of nostalgic realm. I have uh, I have a, a 2012 laptop that I'm actually able to um, to dual boot uh, Windows and OS X for various reasons. I have a Mac at home, so I it's maybe skirting the boundaries of what we're really supposed to do. But I am a paid uh, you know paid user of uh, and kind of registered OS X person. But um, so I, I'm kind of tied to this specific. You know, kind of hardware for a while. I've got Windows Seven, and it, it could it could very easily do eight. I haven't looked at the system specs for ten. I just hope that, as much as I hope that that games and, and applications really take advantage and leverage ten, I, I would really like to them to hold on to some backwards compatibility. I know Windows Seven; they're already talking about, you know, kind of trying to to kind of drum it out. But uh, oh yeah, that's just, the whole reason why they're releasing this upgrade for free yeah. for the first year. All right. Yeah, so I, Microsoft is sick of Windows Seven. I, I really need, need need to look at that. I mean, I, really, I went. Um, this is such a kind of a silly thing, but you know, I had, you know, Windows. Oh gosh, you know, ninety five, ninety eight, and then, um, I, well, believe it or not, I had XP for the longest time and had really no reason to switch. And then, we got a new computer years and years ago, that actually had Vista, and it was kind of a lemon. But by the kind of the the final service pack kind of installation, I just kind of hung on to it, and it worked okay. And really, I guess you could argue Windows 7 is the logical extension of Vista with, you know, some of the really, really kind of awful elements either patched or, or whatever. But, uh, sure. um, but you know, it just works well for the, um, for the old games and for the little bit of development that I do. It, it really, it does well. But I'm very curious. It, it seems like um, Microsoft hasn't, you know, they've been just just kind of killed in the last few OS releases of uh, you know big UI changes, or they seem they caught a lot of flack for 
trying to, at least for Windows 8, you know, trying to make the, you know, take the Windows Phone OS and drop it on. So I don't know that it was really fair. I think the, it seemed like the folks who actually took time and went down to, to research and use it and not just fire off a, a headline for clickbait, um, it seemed like there were some good things there. So I, I, I'm going to see if the system can run it. I would, uh, I would imagine if, if it's EFI installable, I could do it in a, in a dual boot uh, type of deal. But I might have to wait until there's some, uh, some gouge or some, you know, some of the, uh, the other dual boot folks kind of get that going. Although, just the nature of the beast, since the beta, so many beta tests, I'm sure there's probably already a, a huge library of people who are doing that. But uh, I'm very curious, and uh, like I said, for um, kind of gaming, and I really don't dip my toe too much into modern gaming, but uh, I really would like to. I'm, I'm really curious to see how it goes. So I might be contemplating that in the maybe the short term, next few months. We'll see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, I, I don't know if I'd necessarily recommend it in your case then. I mean, the whole if it ain't broke, don't fix it thing. Yeah. I know that you know Mac Mac does its own thing. Apple does its own thing with its own hardware. Sure. The only reports that I've heard about, I don't even remember whether this was about dual booting or parallel. Wait, dual parallels? That's not the same as dual booting, is it? No, no, no. That's, um, that's like a virtual machine. Correct. Yeah. So I've mm-hmm. I've got, and this is somewhat. This is really, I think the solution going forward is something that I've been just kind of contemplating and putting off. But I actually have, and this is oof, this is really uh, tenuous, but. I have two partitions on one hard disk. Got a, you know, a, you know, a, an old non-solid state hard drive, and I've got it's just split in half. And I've got a bootloader, so it'll say, you know, boot to OS X, boot to um, you know Windows, and sure. um, that just loads up every time selected. And the the two machines they can kind of see the um, the other partition, but it's you know kind of separate but equal. Nary the two shall meet. No, absolutely no reason to share data between. Is for all intents and purposes, they're they're separate. Um, but um, the the more elegant and kind of uh, proper solution is to just put a solid state drive in, um, and uh, maybe remove the the optical drive and just have you know, and then have it that way. So the the solid state drive is is you know whatever OS makes more sense, and the other one could be Windows, and and just go forward in there, and then. Any changes would be uh, w- would kind of be protected. There would be uh, uh, you know then I could upgrade and and not have to worry about um, you know because that's the biggest problem. Like it, especially I've got kind of a a slightly older version of OS X as well, and I'm really hesitant to upgrade because it does kind of drive some sort of all right. Let's make sure the master boot record isn't modified and all that. So, uh, oh, so it, w- it might screw up your dual boot. Yeah, and that's. Um, and really, just like you said, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. It works so well. I, I can I can eke out and run the latest version of Xcode uh, for OS or you know for iOS development. I, I can do WatchKit with the version of you know OS X that I have. But the next change that they put in is probably going to require Yosemite, and uh, and that's going to be a little bit of an issue. So. Yeah, I know that's often an issue with Mac in terms of the minimum yeah. OS requirement for software that you download from the App Store or whatever. And and it's really it's really, the nice thing is in the developer program you basically you can for a lot of purposes, but you, you can download old versions, really old versions of of stuff to to try to you know do some bug tracking or yeah compatibility. Uh, yeah, but uh, you know which which is which is very nice, but. Uh, uh, you know, when they when they release, like if they release a new device or or new features, or like in this case it was WatchKit. So the, um, you know, they when they 
when they came out with the Apple Watch and had that they had to push a, you know, a large library of frameworks and, and stuff like that. And they upped the requirement to where um, I think it would run on 10.8 and then you needed, you know, Mavericks 10.9 and then I'm sure the latest and greatest non-beta, you know, bright, shiny version of Xcode, I'm almost positive it needs Yosemite or, God, there might be something beyond that. But whatever the latest and greatest is, I, I, I'm kind of trying to hold off on that. Also because... And this is, you know, this is probably a you know, uh, topic for another podcast. But um, kind of similar to any large OS, they Apple has kind of, you know, they've been good. But the last couple have been fraught with some issues where people say, oh, it's running really slow or there's some problems. So that was the other reason. I said, you know, just for stability and, you know, I like the fact that my machine runs fast. It runs great. Um, I don't really need to. I have no reason to go to the next one just because it's the next one where, I might introduce this, you know, kind of inherent instability or something like that. So, sure, yeah, you always kind of hold your breath when you're up yeah, or something for, new. Indeed. So, so yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, if there's one, if there's one thing that Apple can brag about, I guess it's its track record in terms of the percentage of its users that are currently on the latest version. And I guess oh, yeah. that's more true of uh, iPhone than it is of their uh of their uh desktop os but boy um, that's that's true it it is staggering it's great. good for for developers too because you don't have to worry about the uh disparity of versions yeah good great for developers uh i i happen to <laughs> i happen to have a really old phone and a really really old os that is basically not supported anymore so i'm 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 always curious but i'm pretty sure i'm the one stat that everyone goes why is this you know we've got <laughs> You know, eight billion people on you know OS eight, and what's this one idiot doing on five point one point one? And it's me. So you're the blemish on their on their yeah, perfect pie you know, chart, huh? Where and then I think to myself, you know, it's probably like stack traces and and analytics gets out. It probably doesn't even grab it anymore. It probably just says, you know what, that's too old. You know, forget it. Um, mm. And there have been, boy, there have been a lot of changes to the kind of underlying language. So in in my little sandbox, it works fine. The the phone is is. Uh, is almost five years old, so it's really to the point now where um, it's just starting to kind of show some signs of not working. But I got to say, for you know being used and dropped and everything else, it's been kind of rock solid. So I'm kind of hesitant to get rid of it, but uh, that day is soon approaching. Yeah. Oh, that's great! I miss the days where I would be proud of having a a, a phone for a, <laughs> a huge number of years. Or maybe proud's not the right. Well, I guess proud is the right word. Yeah, like my Motorola Razor, that was probably my most nice. reliable phone. It lasted me almost six years or so. There you and go. I replaced it because I got bored of it, not because it worked any less well. Sure. I like when I retired it and got my very first Android. Shit! Stupid. Oh, mute button. No problem. <laughs> when I when I retired my Motorola Razor and got my first Android phone, which was a really low-powered, inexpensive, crappy device, but it sold me on the whole smartphone thing. Sweet. I just kind of wiped down my. I took my Motorola Razor out of its uh, carrying case and I gave it a little wipe down, and it looked exactly like it did the day I got it. It was such a sturdy, fantastic little device. <laughs> Probably had the best microphone of any phone that I've owned as well. I love that, that thing. It still looks great today. That, that's great. And yet the other thing, and, and this kind of hooks into something that maybe I hope we'll chat about a little bit with the topic today, mm-hmm. is um, if I, and I am, you know, geez, maybe jack of some trades, certainly master of none, not even close, but um, I kind of feel an attachment to this ancient phone and, and the OS 
in that it's still the skeuomorphic, so before they changed the flat look. But um, I hated that. I really hated that uh, design convention. The, the 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 current one or the or the, the skeuomorphism. I like the current. Uh, oh no, kidding. iPhone look. I like yeah. the new big kind of candy colored icons. It's, I hate it when you try to make something look like a real thing. Yeah, it's 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 grown on me. I I was I was kind of the. Uh, I don't know. I, I, so I had the very first iPhone. Is a long story. I think I, I probably told that in another podcast. But I basically I had the LG knockoff of the Razor. There was a huge lawsuit. It looked just like it. I can see why. Uh, you know, had the uh, you know the, the kind of the metal face and, and everything else. And the the short version of the story is it went through the wash totally by mistake. Ran down and uh, put it in the rice and, and got the water out of it. And it worked except for <laughs> it would. Uh, Anytime the battery terminals would contact it, would just vibrate nonstop. So that was, Aww. yeah, still in the drawer somewhere, and uh, still has that behavior. So, um, you know, and the iPhone had just come out. And I'm like, oh, geez, that's way too much money for a phone. And uh, I just happened to kind of walk into some mad money from a from a scenario from years ago. I went, you know what? I'm gonna get this. So I did. So I've actually been with the platform since version one, like pre App Store. Um, you know, when the only way to load uh, uh, non-native stuff was through like a jailbreak or something like that. So mm. I, I feel like I've, I've kind of seen the, kind of been with the evolution of it for quite some time. And I had that original phone up until this one. So I've, I've only had two, two iPhones and I'm not a huge Apple fanboy. It was really um, kind of a selfish end where I wanted to develop for the platform. I said, well, if this is something I'm going to use, then it kind of makes sense just to, to kind of go this way. But uh, mm. the in the very beginning, it was you were very kind of, you had to manage your own memory. There was no garbage collection, no automatic reference counting, none of the stuff that um, I would hear people complain all the time about, oh, Objective-C is so, you know, it's so, the syntax is so goofy and, you know, all this kind of old. So, well, I mean, all that stuff, you know, reference counting and memory management, that's all stuff that you had to do in lower-level languages in the 8-bit days or anything else. So it never bothered me. I didn't come in with, like, a Java bias or an Eclipse or kind of C-sharp bias. I mean, my, my where I felt where maybe I was at the top of my game was all in, in low-level kind of, um, you know, assembly or, or, you know, just like it's very kind of low, non-object-oriented languages of the past. So... Uh, I felt like it kind of gave me a unique perspective, but this notion of kind of having constraints, right? You have this much memory, you have this, and you really have to watch it, you know, in terms of that the first generation of iPhone, the hardware, and the the the, the same crop of the very first kind of Google phones or, or Droid-based phones, too. You, you know, you were talking about CPUs and memory where it w- certainly wasn't what it is today. And, uh, you know, sure. the, the, the GPU pipeline and all that, I mean, certainly it was, you know, you know, light years ahead of, of anything even, you know, going back to, like, desktop computers and whatever from years ago. But um, I kind of feel like this, you know, if, if I'm going to create an app or do something, if I can do it kind of with the pseudo-constraints of my own hardware, then I know that it will run, you know, and be kind of optimized to run very, very well on hardware that runs a lot faster. So Oh, true enough. I guess that, as long as you're not doing some sort of a... Garbage collection or memory hack or something that's no longer valid or would well, be discarded. Well, and you know what? That's that's a really good point. There's actually, um, and this is again back to the skeuomorphic. So I did, uh, I did an app, kind of an enterprise app for uh, for kind of my peer group, and I wanted, um, I wanted the buttons to not look just generic. So there was actually a private framework called uh, 
of all things. Boy, this is really geeking out here. But UI glass button. And if, if you look at the old iPhone, the old Skimorphics, the calculator, how the buttons would look kind of nice. They'd be like dark brown, but they'd have just a little bit of shine to them. Some people oh, I kind it, of have but... a soft spot for that, too. I know exactly so, what you're talking about. Yeah, so, so that was Those actually... buttons are very pressable. Yeah, absolutely. So I, And I really wanted that. And there was a, an undocumented framework that was present only in the like OS5 simulator. So, you know, you had the simulator on your Mac and you could actually call this library and uh, the way that you could kind of put it into your program was, well, I mean, you couldn't really generate it programmatically or if you did and Apple caught you and you put it in the app store, they'd, they'd probably yank it on no private frameworks, whatever, that's fine. But uh, even though it was their private framework, which is a, a whole other story. But um, the, the kind of the way around it was you could... Well, it was a way you could recreate it in Quartz and doing this huge kind of graph. I'm like, that's, that's, you know, that's, that's great that you can do that, but it's a whole lot of wasted resources. Um, so the, the solution was um, basically a very, very simple kind of drag and drop. So wh how, how wide do you want your button to be? You know, this, this height by this by this. Um, and then it would actually save, it would take, take a snapshot and save the PNG that you created. So you said, all right, I want it 50 by 50 by 30. And, you know, you could do the RGB, you know, this much hue and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, as long as you knew the size of the button that you were going to use, um, you know, in, in your program, you could just make that the background. Uh, and that, so that's what I did. So that was, uh, um, and, and forevermore now, that's, uh, that's, so it's got, you know, those nice uh, kind of uh, executive styled sort of glassy buttons. And, and I do miss that. But, um, but that's something where... It, if if you try to call that UI glass button method, yeah, it'll the program will just go what? It it just totally you know in in uh, the modern day it, it says doesn't exist, forget about it, and uh, you know that's so four years ago. What are you doing? Kind of thing. Right. Get a, a really really verbose console output. So so with me, I, I'm not leveraging any type of um, you know OpenGL or anything like that. I, I hope to do that, and in, in that case, I'll have to probably punt the constraints. And actually, the, the last project that I did, I did dip my toe into ARC, into automatic reference counting. So I'm like, you know, I should at the very least know how to do this um, because it's no one, you know, creating a new program going forward unless they're like me, you know, stuck in, you know, 2009 or whatever is, uh, is ever going to do this. It'll still work, I have to say. You can still, uh, you know, manage it. And I always, you know, maybe this is just a, a battle that I'll never win, but knowing, you know, with retains and releases, knowing, all right, you know, I've got this much, I released this much. There is a certain sense of accomplishment with that, but you know what, that's the same kind of feeling that I have where people, you know, say, oh, you know, it's, it, it's a barrier to entry where the, the changes that they've made have, have made it so much easier for people to come over from, you know, from, from the Android realm or from other more traditional languages. And that really going forward is a good thing, you know, to make that the platform available to develop. If you can sit down and say, all right, you know, I don't have to learn, relearn how to manage memory. That, that's, that's good. I, you know, I, I respect I so. that. But, well, I, I'm, you know. there's great value in knowing the underlying systems and functionality of those things as well, like then the, the, the lower level stuff versus like the higher level objective. Or, yeah, objective C, that's, that's a relatively higher level one, isn't it? Yeah, it is. So it's, um, you know, and really, if, if you know, if you know C or C++, the, the biggest difference, and honestly, geez, I'm dating myself. Objective-C has kind of been replaced by, uh, you know, Apple dropped to kind of shock the world and release Swift, that, uh, that language that's kind of their preferred uh, one going forward, which really took 
just about every complaint that was aired about Objective C and said, "Well, we're just going to make a totally new language," and here you go. So they, mm-hmm. um, again, since I really didn't come in with bias, or my bias might have been to the lower level stuff anyway, um, I didn't have a lot of these complaints. But uh, Swift is supposed to be very, very powerful, very easy and adaptable in a relative sense. Um, and I, I haven't. I, it's kind of a, a long-term project to maybe dive in and at least take a look. Nice thing is, it, it will play nice with Objective C. You can write a few Objective C methods, a few Swift methods, and supposedly, they can just exist and do just fine. But um, but yeah, Objective C, it it, it definitely um, the, the syntax is is a little bit different. The method of kind of calling uh, you know parameters, you have, but really, other than syntactical differences, it's like any other object-oriented language. If right, if right. you look at a um, Objective C program, the one thing I will say is the method names are just, they could be like 150 characters long. And that was the thing where the, the goal when they created the language way back when was for somebody who doesn't know programming to pick up your program and go, oh, okay, well, this is the code that does this because it says, you know, what, it, what might it be? Um, uh, you know, method might be fetches, you know, calculator buttons and returns results to, you know, to Chris and Brian. And it'd be like, that's perfectly fine, and then you know, in the realm of autocomplete. But I'm like, why? Why would you name your method so this obnoxiously long thing? So that took a little getting used to. But it's just kind of accepted to where, you know, it's all in, in the in the Xcode IDE and world of autocomplete. You type two letters in it, and it, you know, blows to the end of the line and says, you know, did you mean, you know, calculator oh, button fetches? So really, it it becomes so intrinsic that uh, it doesn't matter. And I will say, it does. It is nice to, you know, I was criminal in, uh, you know, giving my, you know, making my methods or variables this, you know, totally imparsable, like lowercase a one. Like, oh, it's great. What is that going to do? You know, how, did, right. how the heck do you have any clue? And this brings uh, calls back to uh, Ben and Francisco fencing over camel case and method names and that uh, on the blue cup tools where t- Ben talking about tabbing and everything else. And I am very, very strict about that. But my, my downfall is I'll use camel case, but my method names, like a lot of times in trying to make something work, I would just throw test at the end of it. So it'd be like, you know, dictionary test. And then right. I end up like dictionary test one, dictionary test two. I'm like, ah. <laughs> you so, only sabotage yourself over time. Yeah, so if, if any, sure. if any uh, genius coder would look at my, they'd be like, ah, you know what, this is okay maybe, but these variable names, method names, what were you thinking? Kind of thing. Well, that's how you ensure your job security, right? Well, I don't team know. Because yeah, then they're, you're unfireable. Right, so I guess, you know, army of you one. Leave the uh, spaghetti. Yes, that's right. But uh, yeah, so I digress. Anyway, yeah. Well, speaking of digressing, just because you were speaking a little bit about uh, skeuomorphism, mm-hmm. I, uh, I, I, I don't know why I got interested in it all of a sudden. I guess it might have been because of my regular participation in the Tuesday activity, which is something that uh, is organized. I, guess, I don't know if it's Ben Chandler who organizes it or if yeah. it is. Um, uh, Mash Potassium. I think her name is. Oh, I can't remember her name. Yeah, you know what? I, I think it's. I think it's Mash who's driving it. I. I find that I. I. I'm just not. I'm not able to follow along all the time. But it's. it's well, it's very it, time sensitive. Like it's for yeah. one hour at uh, eight at uh, nine p.m. EST every but, week on oh, Tuesday. So what you're a, either there or you're not. Yeah. What What a great thing. I I hope to participate one day. But uh, boy, some of the. Uh, Everyone's stuff is is really great, including yours. Yours, I always enjoy enjoy looking well, at uh, for uh, 
especially because it, it does uh, sometimes some biting social commentary, which I which I love. But uh, well, thank um, yeah, what I what I lack in technique, I have to make up for in concept. Well, no, I mean, no, I have no technique. Oh, I have I have absolutely zero, less than zero drawing ability. Sad to say, but. Um, uh, I, I, know, I knew you were talking about Scubus. I just need to mention there was a maybe you remember it. There was my one of my all time favorite Tuesday entries was uh, this was a while back, but Ben Chandler did one of uh, it was kind of a mountain backdrop, and it was a guy on like not like a tightrope or like a, a kind of a skinny bridge or a plank, and mm. I remember it was it was just kind of a, a kind of a grayscale mountain backdrop, and it was just. It was just amazing. I thought you could have dropped this right into King's Quest V, and I meant that as as a as a extreme compliment. And that's, that's oh, my, I think he would take that as an extreme compliment. Yeah, it, that was my backgrounds. my favorite one. I just went, you know, this this is, mm-hmm. I mean, you could literally put this in a commercial game or and just say this is a, and this was done in an hour, and I just I just went, man, this is really that's really really neat. So that's that's my kind of my one Tuesday uh, that I remember, but uh, you know, kind oh, of going. Last, uh, the last Tuesday uh, was uh, the theme was spring, and so we all kind of did our own thing. I made like a clock of the different seasons with the hands of the clock pointing at spring. Um, ben had a really, really pretty one of like a, a girl in a park on a beautiful spring day. And what struck me as interesting about his painting was that the girl had no face. Huh. It was just kind of there were implied details all over the place and I was just interested in the technique of this and so I went to Khan Academy which is a phenomenally good website yes. for like self-education I, I got to put that in the show notes I love this website so, yes, so much very very good um, and I was reading a little bit about art history and I guess I identified his technique as impressionism mm-hmm. which uh, is all about like uh, implying details with uh, seemingly kind of sloppy so-called unfinished techniques sure um and so uh, i read a little bit more just about art history and around this period and i I forget if it was matisse who did that uh boy uh, it's it's a shame we we don't have francisco because i think his uh i think his university background was was art history or 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 art but uh i think matisse that that sounds right um Maybe I'm sure I'm getting yeah. it wrong. Anyway, um, there were people who had criticized his technique as being like kind of unfinished, and mm-hmm. uh, and calling him I think like a post-Raphaelite, where Raphael was like a, a classical, sure, um, sure, like romantic whatever painting um, uh, artist. And so uh, there was kind of a, a line in the sand drawn at some point. I think it was at first around the 1910s or so, but more so in the 1950s where um, abstract art became a thing. Um, and the people who founded abstract art kind of asked the question, you know, we, we art up to this point has been us painting some real thing in the real world, but uh, all it is is like an abstraction sort of of reality. It's a lie. Why can't art just be art? Why does art have to be a synthetic representation of something else? And so the modern artists would paint like a square with some really, really tiny like details and variations on it. It would be mm-hmm. like completely an abstract shape that sort of makes some kind of a comment or is interesting because it's overwhelming or because it makes you makes you ask questions, but it's not a painting of a thing in the real world. And I sort of thought about the topic of skeuomorphism uh, to that effect because up until, I don't know, a few years ago, I suppose, 
Um, well, I guess at first, uh, operating systems, for example, um, start off in DOS, mm -hmm. and those were super abstract. You would type in a, a command, a word or something. There would be like this kind of syntactic command that you would type in that was almost like a sentence, but uh, it, I guess it was analogous most of all to a sentence where you have like a, a noun and a verb, a subject and a predicate. What do you want to do and what do you want to do it to? Sure. Um, then we had... Uh, then we had like Windows 3.1, let's say, which uh, was kind of like a file folder. Uh, you you had you had like a piece of paper with icons on it, sort of, or you had like a folder with a bunch of pages in it. That was sort of the the uh, uh, that was sort of the theme there. And mm -hmm. then in like Windows uh, 95, everything was all square, but we had some things like a briefcase. Um, and we had like brief, briefcase and notepad and all of these still kind of things that call back to to the physical world. And then the, the UI started to get rounder and more tactile. Like it, they look physically rounder with gradients and depth to them, especially in Windows XP. I just went through a whole spree of installing uh, nice. all of the old operating systems into uh, VMware just because that's kind of how I get my kicks. And it was really something seeing how the uh, UIs change visually over the years, even oh, when they don't sure. change functionally all that much. And so it was really like in Vista, which you had just mentioned, that brought on um, kind of a frosted glass transparency sort of a thing, which uh, is still kind of a, a real world uh, uh, phenomenon that you would observe uh, in the physical realm. And uh, that started carrying on a little bit to Windows 7 and it really wasn't until Windows 8 where Microsoft said, okay, we're drawing the line. No more skeuomorphism at all. We're going to go with colored squares. Right. Because right. It do, it's not important what the, the... You know, everyone understands what a computer is and everyone understands the difference between computer stuff and real stuff and so mm -hmm. we're just going to discard all of that rounded gradient kind of stuff and w this is a computer we're going to act like a computer. Right. And Windows 10 kind of follows in that example as well. Um, sticking very much to what they call tiles on the start menu, for example. And tiles are a cool thing. It's kind of like an icon, but it's like a widget in uh, Android where not only is it an icon, but it gives you a little bit of information. It kind of digs a little bit into the application to give you a bit of info that might suggest to you, like, or it might give you the info that you would have wanted if you had opened the app, but you sure. get it without having to open the app. That's kind of a cool thing. No, that is. No, definitely. Um, and that uh, was kind of the as far as I understand it, one of the big kind of driving force kind of killer app notions of the Windows Phone platform was these tiles. And uh, mm -hmm. there was, uh, I don't know if they had it in Canada, but I remember the initial, one of the initial marketing campaigns for Windows Phone was, um, boy, it was, they, they, it got a lot of airplay. It was this notion of, uh, you know, people, they had, you know, various kind of things, maybe you remember, where, like at the airport, where someone's on the uh, moving sidewalk and they're just buried in their phone, and uh, they would show like people bumping into each other. And the notion was, you know, the Windows Phone, get in, get out, and go on with your life, or something. It was some sort of clever tagline, but uh, mm -hmm. totally poking fun at, you know, certainly the Apple crowd, or uh, maybe even the, the Droid crowd, where this notion of tiles, where you could just see, oh yeah, somebody sent me a you know, message, or and not, I wouldn't have to engage and actually, kind of, you know, put, you know, two minutes into using the phone and disconnecting from the world, whereas I could just look and, and be on with it. And they kind of went away from that. I don't know if uh, maybe developers or somebody went, you know, we actually do kind of want people to use the phones. We don't want people to just, you know, hmm. kind of uh, get in and get out. But it was a oh, very... they still do rely on that, I believe, the Windows phones. They still do have, like, the tiles predominantly. There you go. 
as their UI. Um, and it's it's a great. I, I kind of I wonder if you know they might revisit that from a marketing sense, but uh, uh, it was definitely that that was a good kind of uh, snapshot of kind of the what I think they were trying to accomplish with tiles and kind of the OS. Yeah, it's a differentiator. Yeah. Yeah, I know iPhone didn't have uh, widgets at all until kind of recently where they have stuff, I think, on the pull-down bar and stuff. And uh, yeah. Android, I believe since the beginning, Android had these widgets, which were like these little applets that you could park on your home screen. And if you tap it, then it brings you into the app. But it was very similar to the tiles of Windows Phone, except that I think they had a lot more overhead. They would all kind of render. They have. They all look different. Oh, each sure. Other, and they sure. would all kind of render a little mini version of the app. And so if you were in an app and you wanted to go back to your home screen, sometimes it took a while to load your home screen, which is kind of frustrating. I I love um, customizing my Android home screen. Oh, and putting sure. Relevant information on there. Like that's a, a hobby of mine to make something that looks attractive, but is also usable for my particular needs. So what I usually have at a minimum on my home screen is like something with the time, the temperature and a bit of the weather and what's my next appointment and what what uh, meeting room do I have to go to? Something exciting's happening. <gasps> Hello? Oh, I'm sorry. Did it's I... still there? Yep. Oh, I, I tried to mute it, but that was uh, every once in a while. We're actually very close to the airport, and uh, uh-huh. if there's a, a large airplane that has to use the non-preferred runway, it just rumbles like crazy. So That's pretty that's exciting, actually. DC-10 or something rolling over. So, sorry about are those that. Still in the, those are still uh, in the fleets? That's an old plane, isn't it? Yeah, you know, they are present in in the cargo world, and I want to say there are a few Caribbean or non-North American airlines that use them. But, uh, yeah, they're but, from the 80s or something, aren't they? Yeah, and that's uh, they, they, had a, they had a few really, really horrible crashes, and they famously didn't sell another DC-10 after one of the bad ones so it's it's wow. it's really a shame it's it's probably just kind of bad luck but um but yeah but they are like i said the, the cargo world and i want to say like martinair or you know there, there's so many so many airlines that i've you know seen and never even heard of or seen once but that definitely mm-hmm. sounded like uh, if i had to, to guess just based on the noise i'd say that was some sort of dc-10 or md-11 variant so oh neat apologies for that ah, that's all right makes it more exciting <laughs> Yeah, so I, I've been kind of steering away a little bit from uh, widgets on my Android. I used to use a whole bunch of different widgets, but I found that it really slowed down my phone in terms of trying to get back to the home screen. I would like sure. press my home button, and it might take like ten seconds for it yeah. to load my home screen. And it's not like it loads incrementally. It would just not. It would just show me a frozen version of whatever app I was uh. on until the whole home screen was loaded, and then it would show the home screen. It was unbearable. So now I uh, have replaced a bunch. Like I used to have a Twitter widget. Um, and a uh, full widget for calendar and stuff. Now I just use one widget. It's called Zuper mm-hmm. Widget, which basically has a bunch of, like, uh, y- it's a modular sort of a thing. You make one widget on your home screen, and you can put a bunch of, like, text variables that have hooks into different applications that can pull your next calendar entry and what time is it and what room is it in and uh, oh, for temperature. Like, what's the temperature today? What's the temperature tomorrow? What's the conditions uh all, all this really cool stuff. It also kind of digs into the, the guts of the phone, like what is the temperature of the battery right now, or what's the CPU load, or what uh, C- what speed is the CPU running at, because it kind of clocks up and down in uh, multipliers based on what's going on at that moment. So like the more of that stuff you show, the, the busier your phone's going to be to render your home screen, but at least it's just one app. Um, and it has some flexibility in terms of making it look pretty, too, with like uh, font 
support, and you can embed uh, bitmaps and stuff like that. If you're really, really fancy, which I'm not, you can actually make this widget kind of complementary to a background, where one cool example I saw was someone had a wallpaper of an empty shelf, uh -huh. and then they made all of these like widget modules uh, that look like books on the shelf, but like on the spine of each book was a little bit of information that's being pulled in real time from your phone. So one of the books would be like the temperature with a little icon that shows the uh, the, the weather conditions and one of the one of the uh, things would say the, the the time on it. It was really, really neat looking. Oh, I'm not cool. that good. Oh that's great. Good yeah. Alright. Uh we we have uh I, I'd say that we've veered off topic, but I don't think we ever had one. Shall yeah, we? <laughs> true enough. True Shall enough. Shall we rein this uh this pony in a little bit? Absolutely. Hope hopefully <laughs> right. this was interesting to see. It's interesting to me and hopefully you, but hopefully oh. this old OS talk and regional stuff is, is I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. I hope so. <laughs> so we've got a couple of corrections to announce this week. Um, trolls. Oh yeah. So trolls and Joe Mastriani both. Uh, hi, Joel's, hi, trolls and Joe. Hello. Uh, they both kind of mentioned almost at the exact same time. They confirmed that the Sega Genesis and the Mega Drive are indeed the same device. That's what I had thought. My wife was uh, not clear on it, and they specified that. Um, it could display 32 colors on screen simultaneously out of a full palette of 512 colors. So that, I guess, explains why Sega CD looked so kind of murky and squatchy sure. and dithered, because video with only 32 colors, that's kind of nasty looking. Yeah, indeed. Um, and uh, Ben mentions that uh, he had incorrectly named a real-time strategy game um, he had incorrectly called it Dark Rain, but uh, a, uh, a person named Ulf Erden, who goes by the Twitter handler, handle of Velour Fog, what a fantastic Twitter handle that is. Ooh, that is a good one. I like that. <laughs> That's a good porn star name, I think. Oh, yeah, indeed. Uh, he uh, correctly recognized the game as being called Rising Lands by Microids. Ah, which is interesting. I kind of equate microids with uh, adventure games. I think that was like the Benoit Socal company. They did um, uh, they did a bunch of his games. They did Siberia, I think. Oh, sure. Many others. Okay. Uh, so this was the uh, real-time strategy game he was talking about on our episode about weird games, where one of the resources that you harvest is pumpkins, which oh, I think is kind of charming. That is. That's awesome. That's super cool. So that's it for our corrections for this week. Um, oh, bef uh, I, we can talk about what we played, I guess, and then I'll, I'll talk about... I, I have a little introductory random memory that will take us into our topic. Okay. So, Chris, uh, have you, got, have you uh, had the opportunity to play anything interesting this p past week or two? Yes, and uh, I, I think I might have mentioned this the last time I was on, which was, which was a while back, and uh, uh, thank you. Talking about the uh, early CD-ROM stuff was, was so much fun. Um, but I am uh, always envious of everyone who podcasts seems to, to, to really play a lot of games, which is, which is really great. Um, so I haven't been playing much, but one that I really, really enjoy, and this is 100% thanks to Joe Mastriani from the uh, Upper Memory Block podcast there, is a game called uh, TIS-100. He actually kind of gave it a shout-out uh, several episodes ago, and it stands for Tessellated Intelligence System-100, you know, 
Have you uh, heard oh, about this one at all? I saw this on Steam the other day. This is the one that's like a programming language game, sort of? Yeah. It looks so, fascinating. Really beautiful UI. So, and this is, uh, it's kind of a shame to admit this, but, um, you know, I remember when, when kind of GOG got started and there was actually a Mac program called Boxer, which would allow you to kind of, through wine and through some um, kind of, you know, behind the scenes, pure magic, uh, you know, kind of trickeration where... Uh, it's not a perfect solution, but you could actually kind of get, uh, it would kind of re-roll the code and create like a DLL or something to run. Um, I, I want to say Windows stuff would actually run sort of semi-natively. And and I remember when Boxer kind of integrated with, with GOG where they said, hey, we should get together and do this. This was years ago. But uh, for whatever reason, um, maybe because I, I just, I, I didn't have a laptop till... You know, not too long ago, I've had the one I have for about a year, and was purchased with the really the kind of dual purpose of doing development and whatnot. I am basically a ghost on both Steam and GOG. I don't, and and games that I do play, I I had from way back, and I've been able to kind of you know port them from floppy to hard drive to whatever. So it's not like I don't have access to games, but um, I, I listen to yeah, Joe got through like two sentences of describing this TIS game and it immediately clicked into where I said, you know, this was, this sounds very similar to a game that I always wanted to write, that I hmm. couldn't quite find the, the right way to do it or, you know, there, there were a couple of, oh, and uh, to go back to your your notion of losing all your floppies or whatever, oh my gosh, there, I've, I've talked about this on Ad Nauseam on you know, other, other shows, but um, there are a couple of kind of half-baked kind of you know here's the beginning of a game even back to the atari days that i just wish i could find and i'd probably look at it and be like oh i wrote that when i was seven you know this is terrible but um but they, they kind of encapsulated this idea so i didn't even really listen to whether joe said he liked it or not i i heard it and went all right i'm pausing the ump cast i have to go find this game this this is just from the little description and he, i think he said that he liked it so it's really really neat it's uh it's it's a I think you could probably, maybe not quite fair to call it a puzzle game, but it uses um, it uses basically the graphics are are ANSI graphics. I mean, I, I don't know how this is accomplished in the in the Windows realm, but if you load it up, it is. I mean, it might as well be a, a BBS or a, mm -hmm. a, like an old text adventure. It's just um, it you know uses the the old you know eighty by twenty five you know and the uh, um, kind of the the extended character set where you've got like the the, the pipe. That uh, you know used it and that so, anyway, um, but the the other great part of it is it's not just a straight puzzle game. There's an underlying story, and you reveal yeah. more bits of the story as you kind of progress through the levels, so to speak. Um, it's really kind of hard to explain. I think Joe kind of was like, you know what? If you like assembly language, this is great, and it really is. It's it, it comes with um, you know the manual. It's a PDF. It's maybe twenty pages, but. The whole thing is wrapped in this almost infocom or almost kind of gone home style setup where it's this kind of well-written thing and the, the premise is, and Joe kind of covered this too, is you, um, you go to you know, a relative's house and she says, oh, you know, so-and-so passed away, we're, we're very sorry, but he had a whole bunch of computers in the garage. Here's the only one that we found that was working. Can you make heads or tails of it? So that's kind of the entry point into the game. So you read the manual, and it reads just like um, almost like a quick reference guide to 
the game's version of assembly language, which they call something else. I can't remember the exact, uh, but, um, <clears throat> you know, you see commands like it explains the jump command, it explains the, uh, you know, the move, and, you know, kind of so on and so forth. So it's not exactly, they, but it's very clear they, you know, somebody, you know, had a, you know, an old, uh, you know, 6502 opcode reference and said, oh, let's make it this, and it's just, it's really well done. Um, so I, I kind of feel like it, it really plays to both sides. Um, the, the one downfall is you have to, you have to kind of, kind of get it to really advance the story, but it's very, very compelling. I think it was, I think it was seven bucks, um, and I don't, I don't, I don't have enough experience with Steam to know if that's good or bad. But definitely worth checking out if you did any assembly language program. If you want to learn assembly, this would be kind of a great kind of low threat way to do it. Just I was going to ask, is that a prerequisite? Do you have to kind no, of have no, a no, no, mindset? Not, not at all. As a matter of fact, hmm. it's set up to where. You can, you know, it basically gives you, um, it's kind of like, all right, kind of you have, um, you know, create these commands is a task. So, uh, like, take these, I'm trying to remember what the first puzzle is. It might be, um, take these numbers, you know, uh, basically, you know, input them into this register, output them, you know, to this other register. And that's, and you've got kind of, um, you can kind of see where the, where the data goes. So it's, it, it's a little, it takes a little getting used to, a lot of trial and error, but the thing is, there's kind of unlimited, you can just hit execute or whatever the button is, and then it'll, you can kind of see the, everything go through and go, oh, well, maybe, you know what, I need to send it this way or that way, or left, right, up, or down. Um, so it, I want to say, certainly if you have any type of, even if you're just good at puzzle games or like puzzle games, with no prior programming or assembly knowledge, you could certainly figure this out, and oh, by the way, it would be kind of priming you for attacking uh, like a stack-based, like, you know, push-and-pop-based kind of, uh, you know, crash course in assembly. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely, I, I guess it's, it's, it's gone completely berserk on Reddit. Um, it has kind of a level editor where people can write in custom puzzles, and I haven't gotten exceedingly far. I'm, I'm kind of more drawn to the um, kind of the story element where it does really recall some of the really, really well-written text adventures where it's almost like a mystery of kind of, you know, you, you, the, the reward for getting through a, a tough puzzle or a tough task where you have to, you know, add, subtract, do this, do that, is you get a and little... the story is told in-game as well, not just in the manual? Yeah, it is. So, uh, and, it, and it's actually, you, you kind of have to stumble upon it. I hope this isn't spoiling anything, but, um, you know, you basically the, the game screen is, because uh, it's very, very basic, and um, there's a, there's, might be, you, you have, let's see, I think it's four kind of CPUs per row, and maybe it's four by four or four by three, and there will be one portion of the pipeline that isn't working that says, you know, in-op or, or something like that. And it's red, and there's a little button that says debug, and if you click on that, it pops up and gives you kind of like notes. So um, mm. the, la the one of them was like, you know, dated like 319-1979. Um, oh, so it's like the code comments. It's like the code comments, or it's this, this relative who passed away. It's his notes on trying to figure it out, because there was some a lot of mystery involved in this machine. I guess it was purchased at like a garage sale by this other guy. And mm. um, there's like a veiled reference to, you know, um, some sort of undocumented thing, which is for, you know, high security, top secret clearance required, you know, eyes only kind of thing. And the, and the pages are blank. So, you know, like I said, I, I certainly wouldn't spoil anything. I haven't gotten far enough to really get to where that is, but I'm sure that will be some sort of a, uh, 
um, you know, some some sort of a, a story point later on. But that's cool. If, if you click on the little debug, it gives you like a, a text box, and it's just yeah, just his random notes like, hey, I yeah, I was able to you know I was able to get the machine to do this, or still really curious about what this register is. What the heck is T twenty question mark question mark? Um, or then it might be a little bit garbled. So you know the message starts, and then there's you know it kind of trails off into um, you know kind of uh, you know imparsable stuff so it's just really really well done uh it's certainly not for everybody i would uh definitely maybe take a look at the screenshots as far as music goes it's i mean i think this is great but you get the um you know when it blasts through and you run your program doesn't work you get the kind of uh pc speaker-esque uh, where it's like oh you know that's the you know if you were to hold down the keyboard and you get like kind of the buffer overrun you get that same kind uh-huh. of thing. so I, I i just this appeals to so many aspects of you know what I grew up with and what I really love that you know how could I not like this game but uh, so that's that's one that you know oh my gosh I actually played a modern game pretty amazing even though it's rooted in or you know steeped in you know 1987 or whatever retro but, modern uh, that's great it sounds like it has a lot of similarities to Uplink kind of whereas yeah. this is a programming game and that's yes. more of a networking game. And that's cool. Yeah. And the the description at the end of the description of this game, I guess the uh, programmer never met you because he describes it as uh, the assembly language programming game you never asked for. Oh, no kidding! How about <laughs> that? Well, there you go. I, I would absolutely agree with that. But you know, like I said, in my uh, you know, I, I certainly, if you had asked me, I would have asked for that because I right. couldn't ever quite find a way to um truly really wrap my head around how to to do that and i think they did a they did a very good job so i've been i've been playing that um which is which has been fun um a little bit of um uh i i i went back to in kind of just uh back and forth with um is seeing some some things about people talking about um games and expanding universes talking about uh, conquest of camelot i revisited that i hadn't played it in a long time that was one that I really enjoyed uh, kind of from the Sierra catalog and is, is somewhat unique, kind of often paired with Gold Rush or some of the non-quest kind of quest games that were kind of lived alongside their stable of, uh, of franchise games. Yeah, uh, one-offs. And, you know, and that, that one, um, I really wish they had, they had gone further. Conquest of Camelot and Conquest of the Longbow are, are really strong entries. I think there's some really remarkable EGA art in Conquest of Camelot in particular. And mm-hmm. the reason I went back to it was I actually had forgotten how how many different kind of game worlds or kind of worlds you encountered. And you really do. You go all over the place. You go to the desert and, you know, ice and all this other crazy stuff. So um, so I, I, re- I, I went through that um, briefly. And then really, um, I, I'm a little bit worried about putting it on, but I am just almost ready to pull the trigger and finally install Euro Truck Simulator 2, but I just have this uh, horrible notion that uh, I will stay up till all hours and uh, maybe, uh, hopefully not, but, you know, this notion of, uh, you know, not sleeping and playing a game. It just seems so compelling, like the game that I would love, and I know you and and Joe have talked about it quite a bit. So I think Mm -hmm. um, maybe if the Steam thing says, you've played this game for X number of, you know, that would kind of reel me in, but... uh, I haven't done it, but I'm thinking about it. But uh, that's oh, it's a very good one. We're on the cusp of the sequel coming out as well, American Truck Simulator. Which oh, very nice. I'm going to have a hard time saying no to. Yeah. I think my wife too gets really hooked on those games. Well, you know, maybe maybe I'll wait, and as long as they don't up the system requirements, maybe I'll wait till that comes out. That would be my, maybe a 
a slightly more relatable entry point, though I have to say uh, the notion of finding completely foreign radio stations is a really, really cool thing. I've been to France a few times and, and you know, kind of overseas, and that whole notion of just driving over there is so cool uh, through mm-hmm. all these... Well, that's kind of a nice... I'm, I know that America is a very diverse country with different geographies as well, but that was sort of one of the charms of Eurotruck Simulator is that you go to, I don't know, like 12 or 14 different countries, maybe even more, and each of them sort of has its own sort of geographical, yeah. topological character sure. to it. It's it's really neat like to to cross from one place to another, and you're not sure which side of the road you're supposed to drive on. You're not sure whether the uh, road signs will be in kilometers per hour or miles, mm-hmm. and uh, you don't know whether there will be uh, incremental toll booths or if it's just smooth sailing between the borders. It kind of keeps you guessing. Cool. Maybe it's uh, of similar complexity for the American one. No, I bet it. I bet it will be. Yeah. So so that uh, maybe that's a a good reason to hold off. Maybe just try to get them both, or maybe they'll do a kind of a package deal where they'll do a special or something but uh but yeah and then um i've been uh kind of hammering away on uh i did um uh, uh, uh i was very happy to be a guest on one of the uh atari podcasts there's one called mm. uh player missile where uh the host talks about uh, you know old atari big games but really the crux of it is he goes in in a lot of detail and goes through the kind of chronicles the uh computer magazines of each month and each year. So he might, say, take April of 1981 and mm. looks at, like, Compute and Byte and then, uh, you know, other magazines and talks about and just kind of does, like, a top-down review of, of relevant uh, Atari information. And then well, he might do a game review or he's done interviews. It's, it's a really, you know, not to, you know, plug a, another podcast on your show, but it's called the Player Missile Podcast. It's really, really well done, very professional. And uh, he asked me on to uh, talk about flight sims, and uh, I'm hopefully going to be uh, talking about, we did civilian Atari flight sims a while back, and the military one is coming up, so I've been also playing um, old Atari 8-bit flight simulators like F-15 Strike Eagle and, jeez, um, uh, why am I drawing a blank, um, MIG Alley Ace and uh, you know, Hellcat Ace and some of the old kind of Microsoft titles, and uh, Doing that to try to make sure I, uh, you know, have some information to relay that isn't 30 years old or, or that. And that's and that's. Oh, did Microsoft make Atari games? I'm sorry, just slip of the tongue. Microprose. My apologies. Microprose, right? So, okay. so this is uh, Sid Meier before he was really known as Sid Meier. Although he did throw mm-hmm. his name in front of games even way back then. It was Sid Meier's Solo Flight, which is I've <laughs> talked about, you know, on this one on Anatoly's podcast, kind of all over the place. But uh, um, it, something that's so very interesting to me is the history of these uh, game studios um, that, that go back to the 8-bit or even before, and Microprose has, in its, in its very core, when it was founded, it was founded by Sid Meier and this gentleman from the, from the Air Force, Major Bill Staley. So, Steely, sorry. Mm. Um, and you know, he was an active fighter pilot and, and always kind of viewed it as maybe this can be a tool to kind of try to take you know, whatever we can do with the system at the time and bring real elements. So even though Microsoft, my God, did it again, Microprose went a million different directions, including a foray into adventure gaming in, you know, kind of the MPS labs kind of thing in the, in the heyday of the, you know, early to mid nineties. Um, their roots were always in simulation and they continued to do that. Uh, but it just, you know, they were one of the ones that made it. I mean, you look at all the kind of studios that, or development houses coming on, Spectrum Holobyte, and all these, some of the really, really phenomenal places that ended up being gobbled up by 
EA or, or somewhere else. And Microprose was able to, they were able to kind of stick it out from, talk about a, a kind of a changing landscape of, you know, video game crash to 8-bit, 16-bit console, the whole deal. So I, um, that's just the history of the studio and the developers is something that's just very interesting. And um, I'm sure we'll, we'll get to talk about that a little bit. But um, in the kind of the genesis of Microprose, it was, hey, let's do simulations. How can we do it? Boy, the hardware is constrained, but let's kind of make it work. So, so yeah. Yeah. Was it uh, was it micro Microprose that did some Tom Clancy games like Red Storm Rising? You know, I, I think so. That that kind of coincides with um, kind of a point in my life where I I didn't play games as much uh, for whatever okay, reason. Okay, that was like late eighties, early nineties, I guess. Uh, you know, I want to say. Um, the, the Redstrom stuff was a little bit later because, you know, Tom Clancy had his, you know, Hunter Red October and then that kind of stable of four or five books that uh, were mm-hmm. pretty thick and very famous. And I think kind of at least, you know, not, not really based on any timeline except my own personal selfish one. If it kind of concludes with um, Clear and Present Danger, which had to be like 92, 93-ish. No, that's wrong. Maybe later. 94? A little bit later, I think. Okay. The Rainbow Six stuff Think what well, I think that happened right around mid nineties, maybe ninety six, ninety seven. So yeah, I think so. I, I think and that Rainbow Six was. I mean, if if I recall, wasn't that a humongous hit on kind of the console war? It was kind of maybe it was a. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't know if it was. It was interesting to hear you talk about N sixty four because that was you know what on my first year or two in college. That was everybody had Goldeneye. Everyone had an N sixty four, and it was kind of a killer game for that right. platform. But uh, I want to say Rainbow Six might have been right around there, maybe a teensy bit later, but whatever console it was, and it was certainly released on the PC too, but it was just kind of a, a revelation. And that, I just, I wasn't playing a lot of games then, or, or if I was, I always kind of feel like I missed the, the multiplayer or the kind of team-oriented first-person shooter boat. Like, I felt like I was pretty decent at kind of the first batch, you know, Doom and the really, really kind of beginning ones, Castle Wolfenstein and and whatnot, but after that, it kind of passed me by to where if I sat down to play a game, it would be much more likely to be an adventure game or something like Interstate 76 that was kind of a hybrid or full throttle right. or, or something like that. So it just well, that's the kind of game that I was thinking of when I brought up Red Storm Rising, I guess, because oh, that was yeah. an example I think of micro microprose kind of adapting yeah. to different markets because that, that's right. It started off like games were all arcadey or simulation, mm-hmm. and then they kind of got that was they were kind of wrapped around like the framing device of a, an overarching story or something and Tom Clancy is perfect for Definitely. applying that to a simulator yeah. style kind of a game. So I think Microprose did a good job of staying relevant by adapting to the marketplace whereas I guess other publishers and developers kind of did what they did until they petered out. Now I, I think it is fair to say and I'm, oh boy I'm so sorry for getting off topic here but you know when they when Microprose did go they went a little bit nuts I mean because they the, and the two games that I remember and it's uh, it's worth noting little director's cut trivia for and I was so happy to be on Anatoly's podcast and we actually had about a mm-hmm. five ten minute discussion about this and uh, he later said oh geez sorry I was wrong which never happens so um, I feel <laughs> like I I, uh, um, I I would never you know. Uh, never gloat about this. It was just a, you know, where he was like, oh, MPS Labs was at Micropose, and they did two adventure games that are somewhat notorious. Uh, I don't know if you remember playing them, but Bloodnet was one, and then, mm. of all things, 
Phantom of the Opera. Do you remember these guys? I mean, this is like... It's, <laughs> Blood Net, I remember, not oh, the other one. Oh, gosh. So, of all things, it, it's worth checking out screenshots, whatever. The Blood Net was punishingly difficult. But it was... Um, it was so kind of steeped in this kind of... I'm not a vampire guy at all, but it was enough kind of cyberpunk kind of combined with uh, kind of an odd element. And it was so difficult. Mm. But um, like many games, I let's just say, um, perhaps had a occasion to stumble on this one without a manual or, or any supporting documentation. Read into that what you will. So it was even harder because it was just like, load the game up and, you know, no idea what to do. And... Uh, it was just kind of almost uh, an interesting, like, you know, the, the, the Ben Chandler bumper sticker that I want in my car, exploration is gameplay. I would add, yes, <laughs> yeah. 100%. I would say my two cents would be immersion is gameplay, but that's another story. Um, it, sure. it, of course, paired with, with exploration. I love that uh, kind of uh, turn of phrase there. But uh, just trying to figure out everything was, was almost an exercise in itself. And then uh, Phantom of the Opera set amongst kind of a familiar kind of story was just this it was so strange but um i i I don't i don't know how they sold i don't think they did very well i think microprose at that point went all right maybe we need to reel it in a little bit here you know we were the simulation guys we were the you know the action guys and they were able to kind of bridge elements like one of my favorite ones that i talked about a little bit on anatoly's was atac this uh um simulator that uh, kind of brought in kind of the notion of resource management and forces on the ground to kind of do the, you know, the war on drugs with airplanes, but you could also kind of have some limited troop control and this whole kind of thing. It was a really interesting um, kind of very um, um, kind of grand kind of scope of, of what to do. But uh, mm-hmm. I feel like, you know, Micropose and MPSFs, they were churning out so many games. They just said, oh, what the heck, you know, let's uh, let's do an adventure game. And, you know, how can we go wrong kind of thing. And, uh and there were definitely some good elements, but I kind of looked at that as maybe they were at their kind of their peak where you looked and then they were they were in different arenas. They were on consoles, they were on PCs and all over the place. And then it kind of came back to where they focused a little bit more on their kind of core gameplay. And they, they might have well, there might have been studios that, you know, certainly MPS Labs was one, but uh, there might have been other studios under the, the auspices of Micropose that continued to do kind of fringe stuff like adventure games that kind of differed from their kind of core business model. I, perhaps I'm not, I'm, I haven't really looked, but uh, it's just, it, but they were able to, to soldier on. I think uh, one of the last simulations that they did, at least in the, in the DOS realm was um, that B-17 flying fortress. Oh no, I'm sorry. Take it back. Let's, it's one of, um, I'll get, I'll get uh, flack of it. I'll mention F-14 fleet defender, which is one of Carlos Teixeira's favorites. Uh, that was like 95, 96-ish, uh, right in the where you had to pretty much, going forward, it was hard to make a case for doing a, a DOS game that didn't have a Windows executable as well. So certainly there were, there were games that, that did, but you know, once kind of the, the midpoint of the 90s going forward, it's, it's, it's mostly Windows. So, uh, but they continued on in, in Windows. I want to say Gunship 2000 was, was one of the last ones, and... And I don't really know. I need to probably look, but the rest of the story with that, I don't know what kind of happened to Micropose. I don't think they're present in a standalone form anymore. Maybe Activision gobbled them up. I want to say, I don't know. It's worth looking into. But they they were able to kind of continue on. I feel like that late 90s period uh, where Sierra famously had Chainsaw Monday, where they moved from, um, gosh, they moved from California up to the Seattle area, 
and then it was kind of the writing on the wall and, and Scott Murphy has famously talked about the day that they came in and just fired a whole bunch of programmers and game designers and the whole thing with the sale and it's just a, it's an awful kind of tragic story kind of on and on where company gets sold and then the scandal and blah 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 so on and so forth it's been told many times but <clears throat> kind of feel like that late 90s period where you had you know were people getting 3d cards where it was just kind of an odd space was you know away from dos into windows and um you know there was yeah a lot of platform disparity around that time where kind of the pc realm was sort of reforming yeah kind of the rise of the consoles and uh it was it was kind of a it's so weird, kind of set against a a time where you could say, certainly North America, the economy was humming, we were generally free from conflict, but there was a lot of turmoil that, that the you know, the internet was kind of in, um, you know, was kind of web 1.0 and kind of, you know, finding itself, so a very, and that coincides exactly when I was at university, so um, a very, very strange time, a lot of, lot of companies started up, shut down, and um, kind of an identity crisis, at least I think in the in the in the macro sense of the game world. But uh, it, I, mm-hmm. I want to say Microprose didn't last too much beyond that. I want to, for some reason, the millennium, like two thousand two thousand two thousand three, is what Wikipedia. Oh, says. there you go. Okay, so so they were able to, to to keep it going for a little longer than I thought. But that was uh, that was kind of it. So so anyway, I'm sure that'll be uh, that'll come up. But I just I love the history of places that have some kind of longevity to to find out kind of how they were able to adapt and how they started and to look at one of their really, really old products and go, boy, they came from Floyd of the Jungle, which was a, a very, very basic kind of, not even really a platformer, almost like a, um, you know, like a, a, a side-scrolling one screen or it kind of almost defies explanation, but from that in four colors or whatever up to, you know, this really, really intense, robust, awesome flight simulator across different uh, different platforms or windows. It's just, I, I just kind of love that evolution, so... So, yeah. Oh, yeah. For sure, and Sid Meier himself is a hell of an impressive guy who has really stood the test of time in terms of remaining relevant and innovative now, all these years later. I, He's been up to it for like 30 years. It's it's amazing. And, uh, Incredible. And can, can definitely hang his hat on some of the kind of ultimate uh, defining titles of, of the game genre in general. But now, is he is he from Sarnia? Is he Canadian? I, I can't remember. I don't think so. Okay. Uh, Why that uh, that stuck in my head? I thought for some reason. Let me look him up. I thought he was American. Okay. I will. Uh, let's see. Born in Detroit, Michigan. Uh, Michigan. Never so mind. Well, may- close to the Canadian border, may- anyway. Right. Maybe he visited Sarnia or something. I don't know. I don't know why I had that in my head. That must be oh, somebody perhaps. else. But uh, it's across the river from Windsor, Ontario. There you go. So yeah. Maybe that has something to do with maybe, it. Maybe uh, an honorary Canadian. Who knows? Yeah. When my wife and I last went to a board game cafe, we went to one in downtown Toronto called Snakes and Lattes. We very briefly pulled off of the shelves Civilization the board game. Oh, um, nice. Which was it weighed like it weighed like 40 pounds oh. or something. It's ridiculous. We opened it up. We took out the instruction manual. The instruction manual was like 36 pages long. Oh. We closed the box and put it back on the shelf. Good grief. It's just intimidating. Yeah. It makes Risk look like tic-tac-toe, I, I swear. I don't, I don't blame you. But that must be a really great game. I'm sure that's like a multi-day game. That's not the kind of thing that you want to play in a cafe. For sure. Especially not with two people, I'm sure. Oh, for sure, for sure. That was intimidating. Oh, cool. Is that, is that everything yep. that you yep. played? That, uh, this? That, that's it. Yes, indeed. All right. I have just three games that I was going to mention this week. Um, I've been playing a little bit on my exercise bike, a game called Hero Siege, which is a modern game, but it's in like the old retro pixelated graphical style. And it's kind of halfway between like like 
Diablo and Zelda, sort of. Mm-hmm. It's um, the sort of game where the objective is to just kill a bunch of monsters. You, you start out by picking your uh, class. So they have, like, an Amazon class and a caster and a Viking who does uh, big melee chops with however many of the expansions that I happen to own. Mm-hmm. I think it's, like, ten bucks for the base game plus all the expansions combined. Um, there's probably, I think, eight or nine or ten different classes. There's a redneck class who has a chainsaw, <laughs> which nice. sounds fantastic, but because I play this game on my exercise bike early in the morning, I don't want to play a character with a chainsaw because I'll probably wake up my wife. Mm. Um, so you run around and you kill all these monsters. Um, you gain experience points and you level up, and when you level up, you get a little bit more powerful and you can spec points into uh, different attributes like what your what's your health or what is how strong are your attacks or how frequent are your attacks. And there's also a skill tree that you can put points into, which gives you new skills or improved skills that you have. Some of them are active and some of them are passive. So I'm having a pretty good time with that. It's very, very challenging. In addition to uh, leveling up your character, um, you also earn these skills or special items by killing uh, big, big uh, enemies at the end of every level. So every uh, every level is kind of like a, a great big square map, and you clear... Uh, there are different rounds. I think there's like seven or eight rounds for each level. So in one round, a whole bunch of monsters will spawn at the different extremities, and they'll all just start lumbering towards you. And so you have to kind of clear them off the map. It's kind of like asteroids, I guess I would say. Oh, cool. In that in that way. but uh, Or like Smash TV a little bit. But slower pace than slash, Smash TV. And there's a big variety of enemies, and some of them are melee, and some of them have projectiles. There's also environmental hazards, like uh, spikes on the ground, or like blowtorch traps and stuff like that, and part of your strategy can be to have the uh, dumb enemies that mostly just walk towards you, you can kind of walk them over the environmental hazards to kill them, and you still get the experience points for it. So there's a good bit of strategy. It's also kind of a bullet hell sort of a game where you'll get a whole lot of projectiles on screen at once, and you have to kind of walk carefully around those while still maneuvering yourself in positions where you can attack, because you can only attack in uh, the four main directions. There's no diagonal attacks or dual analog controls or anything like that. Nice. Um, quite a fun game. It's a good time time waster. Um, the, the real interesting thing about it is that the maps are randomized, the enemies that spawn are randomized, and also the special items that you pick up are randomized. So it's the sort of game where you might play and have a bad run with uh, bad luck on items and, and enemies and you die, but any uh, experience points that you've accumulated stay with you, and then when you restart the game, you can start on at the beginning of any of the main levels that you have unlocked. I think there's seven levels or so, and I've unlocked about three of them. Cool. Um, but every now and then you'll get really, really lucky with some very powerful, overpowered drops, and that will enable you to unlock new stuff that you were never able to unlock before, which means that you're fighting more powerful monsters with that will give you more experience points, and that kind of elevates you to to uh, be more powerful when you inevitably die and uh, start again later. So Hero Siege, that's a really fun one. All right. Unfortunately, it's a great it's a great indie game. It's gotten better and better over time. It's been out for a few years now, and the developers are still actively improving the game in little ways. The art is terrific. The UI gets better and better, and the gameplay itself gets a little bit more refined over time. But the voice acting is just atrociously <laughs> bad, very indie and Aww. lousy. So that takes a little bit away from it. It's the sort of a game where a bad voice actor records like four lines, mm-hmm. and you'll definitely hear those four lines over and over and oh, over. Oh, sure. So that's a little frustrating, but what are you going to do? Yeah. It's a, a great value for the money and a really fun game. Cool. Um, 
the next one that I played a little bit, this is a game that I keep picking up and putting away because it's so frustrating, but so funny and so, so good. It's called Super Amazing Wagon Adventure. Um, it is also a retro-looking game. It kind of looks like an Atari 2600 game, mm-hmm. and it even has, like, a faux... Uh, CRT monitor nice. filter on top of it so that like the corners are sort of curved inwards a little bit Aww. so it looks like you're looking at an ovular television sort of or uh, a rounded, rounded rectangle uh, television with scan lines and stuff so that's a little bit charming. Um, big fat colorful pixels and so it's uh, at its heart it's like a shoot 'em up uh, kind of a space invader sort of a game mm-hmm. but uh, the context for the game, it's very much making fun of uh, Oregon Trail, oh, where nice. your your character, you have three uh, characters all on this horse-drawn buggy, and you shoot a variety of weapons. Usually you just have a pistol or a rifle or whatever your main uh, weapon is, but you pick up little power-ups. Some of them uh, are uh, period accurate, I guess you would say. Mm-hmm. There would be like a shotgun or a bow and arrow. But every now and then you'll pick up something like a laser gun or a flamethrower <laughs> or have like an airstrike of like B-52 bombers that explode all the buffaloes and rattlesnakes around you, which is really funny. That's awesome. Um, it has a bit of a WarioWare pace to it mm-hmm. where there's a few different it's like a branching uh it's a game where you'll you'll uh, start off in this in one place and then there's a chance of you spawning like maybe three or so variations of the next area that you go to and you'll finish that one and then maybe it'll give you a choice do you want to go this way or that way and you'll te- you'll uh, choose one of those and maybe there's two or three different variations of the choice that you've taken so um, it's the kind of game that you'll play over and over and not really get the same combination of scenes twice in a row. Um, and depending on how many of those areas that you conquer, you unlock different uh, horse-drawn buggies. There's one that looks like uh, like the Discovery Space Shuttle. There's one that looks like uh, Cinderella's fancy uh, frilly wrought iron buggy with the pretty white horses. Um, it's really amusing. It's uh, it's very challenging. Um, and every time you uh, pass one of your levels, you get like one brief uh, screen full of text with a little bit of very silly story. Cool. And it's, of course, one of those games where you can name your three characters, mm-hmm. just like you sort of could in uh, uh, Oregon Trail. Sure. So it makes it that much funnier <laughs> when something happens to somebody. Yeah. Um, or when two of them happen to fall in love. Sure. Uh, very, very cute game. I played. I've, I've put, I guess, about two hours or so into it since I bought it, like a year and a half or two years ago. And I got a little bit farther, a little bit farther. I would put it away and inexplicably get way farther after not playing it for a few months. Mm-hmm. So I think it's been a good six months or so since I picked it up last. And I just played one game for the hell of it. Uh, a couple of days ago, and I finished the whole thing for the very first time. Oh, man, that's awesome. Just awesome. And, I mean, there's a few different endings. I think you just go through, like, 10 or 12 of these different scenarios, and then you're at the end, and you live happily ever after. Cool. Um, So I've got to do it a few times to unlock a bunch more stuff. But it's very charming. It has terrific kind of chiptune-style music that is not at all appropriate for the setting. It's kind of like like demo scene... Uh, demo uh, techno music, oh, which is man. really funny. Well, but it's very tongue in cheek and very very funny. I love it. Oh, it's that's a fan- fantastic! Work. Awesome. I uh, if not for the segments on all these various podcasts about what have you been playing, I get all of my not all most of my game recommendations from uh, you know from these types of things. And you had me at Pixels <laughs> really, but this sounds like I will definitely be checking this out. This sounds right up my alley as far as uh, hooking into various kind of points that I like. So. And the uh, 
what an awesome framing device you know the the CRT monitor I'm boy I would I might get it just for that but uh, oh it's yeah. it's really funny it's a perfect it's a, at its heart it is a frustratingly hard uh, action game it's very much like an Atari 2600 sure. style game but it's very cute and very funny and very very creative uh, it's hilarious I just love it good yeah love it like crazy um. So the last game I'll talk about briefly, because we just bought it yesterday, uh, is a game called Contradiction, which is a full-motion video uh, detective game. We were very much in the mood for this after playing Her Story, mm-hmm. um, which a few of my guests have talked about, and I, like, I bought it for a few... I was so excited about this game that I bought it for a few people, and they've all talked about it on their podcast. Awesome. It's hard, I, I, I don't know if I know anyone who doesn't have a podcast nowadays, geez. <laughs> but <laughs> my wife and I played Her Story, and it was... A fantastic game on its own right, but it was fantastic. Even better to play uh, two people collaborating, or as a few people collaborating. So we were totally in the mood for another sort of a detective story, mm-hmm. and it just so happened that this game, Contradiction, was another FMV detective story. So this one's a little bit different than her story. It does have its similarities in that, you know, it's it's uh, video, of course, and uh, you basically uh, you interview a bunch of people as opposed to her story, which is just one one person on video the whole time uh you're in a town and you have to solve the mystery of uh, a girl who died and it was declared a suicide but there's a few suspicious uh elements that suggest that maybe it might have been a murder so you have one night to uh prove that it was a murder and not a suicide oh wow so it takes place in a little uh, british town somewhere and uh, there's a colorful uh, cast of characters that you have to uh, interview, and they've all got their own little secrets. It's like a gorgeous HD video. It's a very charming little town with beautiful scenery, and it looks fantastic with the cinematography and the lighting that they use. So it's a very kind of serene, peaceful sort of a place. Um, the I don't want to give anything away about the story, because it's totally worth playing. I think it's 10 bucks or so. Okay. Um, the main gameplay is you walking around the map, um, and it doesn't have superfluous, uh, too many superfluous um, uh, transitional videos. It doesn't show your character like walking oh, from scene to scene every nice. time you click a button or picking up little objects and looking at them and going, hmm, <laughs> or brushing your hair or anything like that. It kind of cuts to the chase a little bit. Okay. And it, it does a smart thing where maybe an establishing shot will be you going to a place for the first time and having a little look around, mm-hmm. but in subsequent times you go there, it will like start that nice. video, but then immediately kind of do a dissolve into whatever's pertinent. Gotcha. So it's respectful of your time, which is kind of nice. That's good. So you'll talk with someone, and you'll unlock different uh, topics of conversation, or they'll give you an object which you can ask people about, and uh, you kind of talk with them to exhaust your list of different uh, topics, and then it automatically makes these point form notes that uh, summarize what the person has told you. You can choose any one of those points and compare it to another one to... to, uh, uh, catch them on contradictions. Cause the name of the game is Contradiction. Cool. And that's how you can uh, uh, ring a little bit more information out of them. So it's uh, some once or twice. It's kind of uh, just, I guess, due to our my, the the limited intellects of my wife and I. I suppose we've had to kind of compare everything with everything at some points, just because we were totally stuck, or we knew what we wanted to say, but we didn't know exactly the combination of points to compare with each other. Mm. But uh, for the most part, it all makes sense, and it's a fun little story with fun characters, and we like it a lot. The only thing I feel bad about now is 
that it has uh, achievements, and I needed to use a walkthrough for one thing because I was totally stumped. There is an in-game hint system, mm-hmm. but I didn't want to use the in-game hint system sure. just in case it counted against me or I didn't uh, get to see the best ending or something. Sure, so sure. I looked at the walkthrough once, only once, to get a hint about something, and I got the answer for it. And it's exactly what we thought it was. We were just comparing the wrong words with the wrong words. Ah, uh, sure. And so immediately after we cheated and got that one, that one hint, I got an achievement called "No Cheating." Oh. So and it, and no cheating was in all capitals too. Oh my god. So gosh. I felt like a real scumbag oh, after no. that. <laughs> so hopefully, the, hopefully the, the developers will forgive us because we totally I think so. didn't deserve that. Cool. So that's what we've been playing anyway. Uh, can I? So I know that. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yes. No, no, no. Oh, no. I, I just wanted to uh, be respectful of your time. Oh, and make sure. sure. That we uh, got you out the door when we needed to. But you go ahead. No, and I just, I'm just going to just hit these real quick. I, I forgot to mention, and I, I, I will spend no time in this because I know we've got a topic that I uh, want to get to. Uh, your show on weird games was, was so good. I got the feeling that you guys probably could have talked for another three hours about different games and in in the kind of list i can't believe i forgot this and that inspired me to play a few weird games that that some of my favorites going way back and i will just list them very briefly and most of these are on the atari platform but i think were ported um to the c64 and ms dos and, and whatnot um the one the very first one that comes to mind is one called in search of the most amazing thing ever ever hear of that one um no that's quite a name. All right, so there's not a whole lot of information on it. This was a company called, ah, oh, geez, Spinnaker, which I think either started as Tom Snyder Productions or maybe ended or something. Oh. And um, I, I, I don't even, you know what, If it's kind of a long name. If, if it's, it's just worth looking at. It, it did get a, a lot of cross-platform kind of early 8-bit, early 80s, or, you know, like 82, 83. Um, that's one that's just, it, it creates this enormous game world in a very, very rich sense, story, um, exploration, all of it. Very, very, very good. The uh, Probably a little too, probably tries to do a little bit too much, but just a weird and awesome kind of game. So that's one. I promise I won't take a lot of time. Another one is, uh, I think, like a few years later, it did get kind of cross-platform, one called, well, of course there's Weird Dreams, right? That's really, really weird, just in the name. That's kind of an easy one. But there's another one called Mind Mirror. Did you ever ever hear of that one? That sure sounds oh. familiar. All right. Was this, oh, this is the Timothy Leary game. I played this. It, yeah. It's like a self-analysis game. Oh, it is. Was it creepy? And if we're thinking of the same one, the box art, I want to say, is an old guy with glasses looking in this kind of, like, ovular kind of concave mirror it was really creepy really really odd box art but yeah i typically that that's i i actually wasn't aware that that was it was him but it's a very strange game that's another one um that that got kind of oh yeah um, i'm I'm taking a look at the uh box art on uh google images it's sort of like an mc escher yeah oh there you go that's right so i'm maybe that was a a page of the manual or something but that's that's another one and then um the last one is one that i feel like um, I, I mention all the time, whether it's in um, uh, Morning Dos Talk or something like that, but it's, it's such such a great game and, and, and certainly weird, but just I kind of feel like doesn't get a whole lot of, uh, of recognition in kind of the stable of Infocon games. And I know that Anatoly loves this game and there are, there are others, but it's a text adventure called A Mind Forever Voyaging. You ever play that one? 
Oh, I have heard about it a million times. I'm, I'm sure. ashamed to say no, that. No, no, no. It's, it's one of those, I feel like it's mentioned enough that, that people are just sick of hearing about it. But boy, <laughs> oh boy, this one actually was too big to, they were going to port it to the Atari. And I think they, you know, the, the Atari 800 had kind of a, um, a 48K limit. And there were, I think, 800 that shipped with less than that. So you didn't know, you know, 48 was the upper limit. And then Atari had the, uh, you know, the various kind of, progression of the lines where um, a lot of the XLs had 64K and then in kind of the swan song when, you know, kind of concurrent with the, you know, or the impending release of the Atari ST, which was 16-bit, uh, and I think had 512K or, or a meg, um, you had the 130XE uh, or various forms of the XE, 65XE, blah, 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 so on and so forth, that had 128K, I think expandable to, well, 128 for sure, but in order for to basically to port it backwards, um, you know, from the Commodore 64 or anything. It all had a kind of a common engine, but they would have had to target the XL with 64K. So it never made it to the 8-bit, to, uh, to the Atari 800 per se, but uh, certainly C64 and DOS. And this is one, like I said, if you, if you kind of refer back, I mean, it's, it's all over the place. People mention it, it'll pop up in articles, but um, just such a such a rich kind of compelling game and I kind of feel like it's overhyped at this point but um, it, it kind of it, it, it kind of recalls a very similar kind of I don't want to say emotional reaction to inserts the most amazing thing where it's this very very kind of grand game world and you feel um, that, that just playing it you feel much like a part of something much much bigger than just you know a small TV in a small room and a you know very monochrome kind of interface so I just wanted to mention those three because I did actually play those inspired by your uh, your podcast there, and that's all I'll say. If people want to check them out, they oh. can. They're fr- I think archive.org has at least at least a few of those, if not all of them, where you can just play and browse. You don't have to you know fudge around finding an emulator, but they are all out there. They're all um, you know whether it's disc images or whatever. At least in the Atari world and in the DOS world, I think uh, you know I, I don't know if. Um, a Mind Forever Voyaging is, is part of the that any of the Infocom stuff that's available. I want to say maybe not. I'm pretty sure there's a DOS version. Okay. Quite yes. sure. Abandonia.com, which I'll put okay. into our uh, yeah. show notes. They have a okay. lot of this stuff. So, they had Mind Mirror as well. There you go. So, yeah. So those were uh, just weird, maybe a little creepy. Definitely, as a kid, uh, there were some uh, kind of like uncomfortable, not like really bad, but just like, oh, this, this makes me a little uneasy kind of reading this in, in really all of them, but uh, much more so the, uh, the latter two. And Search the Most Amazing Thing was actually, um, I think, kind of targeted at a younger audience. So there's, uh, um, it's, it's kind of whimsical and, and whatnot, but uh, the other two are certainly more, I guess, kind of grown up. There's one last one, which in the, in, by Spinnaker, and I promise we'll go on to our topic, um, but you talked about mysteries, and this was very much in the edutainment kind of, trying to aim at the, uh, like the lemonade stand crowd. Uh, Spinnaker again, um, for the, again, I think got ported all over the place, but it was, it's got a funny name called uh, Snooper Troopers. And uh, they had two cases. It was the case of the disappearing dolphin and, oh, rats, I can't remember the other one, but um, uh, basically a, a kind of a, a halfway kind of graphical, um, very, very basic UI where you're a detective and, it's you know what honestly it's worth if I were teaching a game design class I would absolutely put this in there because they have a driving mechanic you have to actually 
you, you enter a house and it's, it's just, it's so neat. You have to wait till the people aren't there. If you enter and look for clues, when someone's there, you get caught. It's really very suspenseful and um, you kind of accumulate this large, it sounds very similar to, um, uh, to Contradiction in that you basically come up with all these notes and you have to kind of hit the right combination of clues and, and so forth to kind of advance the story. And then in, in a very kind of, uh, you know, the clue board game kind of thing, you know, Professor Mustard with the candlestick and the whatever, you kind of, you can basically, after you've ruled out all the suspects, you make your accusation. But I remember as a kid, I had it to where I had everything figured out and I couldn't actually leave the police station. Like it was locked and it must have been a, a glitch or something where like, all right, it was this person. I have the the damp boat shoes, I have all these things to prove that this is who it was, and it wouldn't let me continue. It wouldn't let me, like, oh. key in some, oh, man. So, um, but there were, I think there were two cases, like, the case of a disappearing dolphin is one. There's another one that's just as good, um, kind of maybe fits into the weird element, but really for very, very basic um, kind of text graphics, a little bit of, Honestly, it's probably the first stealth game I can remember where you, you have to you creep in, you use your oh. flashlight, and you creep into like someone's basement or at something, and uh, you know, you, oh, it's just it's so. There actually there are a lot of really good kind of scary elements. I don't know how it would translate to a, a larger computer or whatever, but um, I remember one of the ones is you, you drive to this, you know, you drive up to a house like, oh, this is one of the suspects. This is so and so's house, and there would be a random mechanic where a jogger would come down the street and it would make this horrible Atari kind of register noise. It was almost the, uh, like the reset noise, but sped up. And it would just scare huh. the bejesus out of you, if especially, <laughs> you know, because you're like, oh, God, I hope this person's at home. I need to get in, you know, find the shoes and, and get out. And it was, so it was all very kind of suspenseful. And, and, and this jogger would come screaming by, like, oh, my God, what's that? Oh. Was it in real time or was it kind of turn-based, like a text adventure? You know what? It, it, crazy enough, it was it it was kind of in between, but it was sort of real time mm. to where, um, you know, you would if you spent certainly too long in someone's house, the person would get home, you'd hear footsteps. It was just oh man. So that's that's worth taking a look, um, you know, in your emulator or whatever. But uh, the Snooper Troopers, Snooper that sounds Troopers. great. So, um, so yeah. So I just wanted to. It was such a good show. I just wanted to mention that um, and. I've blathered for long enough, so anyway. Oh, that's excellent. Well, you did mention something I think that ties very well as a segue into our uh, topic, which we're going to talk about the demo scene mm -hmm. today. But I thought that it was uh, fantastic the bit of commentary you gave about system uh, minimum system requirements for a text adventure game, which seems like such a ludicrous concept nowadays. But it's fascinating to think that there were so many different platforms that they had to account for and that it just was too much game for some of those platforms. That's just fascinating to me. Yeah, and in the, in the Infocom sense, there was just, um, there was so much there where, um, you know, part of the, kind of the crux of um, Mind Forever Voyaging is interaction with this computer. And there's this, you know, large database of stuff. And they just, it's, it's kind of amazing. It was always an issue of optimization. And, uh, you know, you, you really, you didn't really have 48K available because you had, you know, whether it was basic or, you know, the OS kind of loaded, you know, they didn't, you didn't have enough memory or, or couldn't rely on the capability of having, being able to do bank switching. The disk drive was so slow that you didn't want to just do continuous reads. You would kind of have to read, load stuff in and all these optimizations that are, are so interesting and appeal to my, 
you know, extreme low level kind of geek sense. But yeah, they just they they tried and tried and just and just couldn't do it. It's kind of kind of amazing where they could have in 64K, but 48K just wasn't enough. So I uh, that's yeah. incredible because that just seems like such an insignificant amount oh, I know. of memory. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Nowadays, you can buy like an eight gigabytes flash drive for like ten bucks. Yeah, and we're talking about like like twenty kilobytes here. So that's incredible. Or you could potentially put load and you know make a bootable you know make your enormous uh, SD card or something. You could you know you could probably boot Linux off of that if you really wanted to and just use that if you've got sure. fast access or you know you could do that. And and that's I mean I, I'm you know I, that was how I installed the EFI version of Windows. I put it on a a thumb drive and you know and 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 went went to town so yeah. oh right well i'm sure it's the same spirit of optimization that uh, attracts you to the demo scene yes yes indeed and uh and this this is a topic that that i really love i um in in my kind of forays into programming over the years in different eras and you know different platforms um i felt like the the demo scene folks were always who i looked up to as ones who were taking the constraints and just throwing them out the window and saying, you know, we can do this, we can, you know, and it was just such kind of that spirit of innovation. Um, and also, too, the, the kind of the, the large sense of the demo scene. The one, the, the period in time I'm most familiar is kind of the, 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 the kind of 8-bit realm of Atari, and I know it went completely nuts on other platforms, uh, Commodore 64, Amiga, etc. And then the kind of my own selfish personal golden age of kind of the the height of MS-DOS. So uh, you're talking like mm. kind of late 80s to very early 90s. And, you know, that's that's probably where I feel the, the most attachment, the most nostalgia. And I think it's worth saying, especially given I'd, I'd maybe, maybe love to come back and, and maybe expand on this some at a, at a later time. But um, mm. that that portion, that MS-DOS, say, 87, 88 to maybe 92, 93, 94, is, is probably, if I have to pick a favorite, that's certainly the one I identify with the most. But there are a whole host of actual true demo scene folks. Who you, I think you can certainly count yourself as a part of that in creating mod music. I dabbled in that a little bit. But um, mm-hmm. in kind of preparing for this, for this podcast, I think it's... Um, to, to try to to go over everything and make kind of a comprehensive list of it's just I mean it would it would fill a season's worth of podcasts and there are folks out there who are you know a thousand times smarter than I am and will will you know forget more than I will ever know uh, I'm looking at you Jim Leonard Moby Gaber who's just mm-hmm. like I said one of my you know programming and kind of personal heroes in, in many respects uh, that can really speak to kind of the technical and you know, he's really immersed himself in that. He is that. And, uh, and I was thinking, you know... Yeah, the, uh, the theme song for this podcast I wrote with uh, a tracker called uh, Mon- Mono, oh, perfect. which was made by Jim oh, Leonard. That's great. Leonard. It's a, a PC speaker tracker. He, he's a great... Uh, just, a, just, a gr- uh, just a tremendous... I, I kind of, you know, he, at least in, in the U.S., he's just a phenomenal resource, great guy. Um, you know, Legend. Absolutely. So... Um, I, I will not be bringing that. I, I have my kind of, you know, my memories, my, you know, kind of dipping my toe into trying to replicate some of the things from a programming sense. I feel like because I was involved in, you know, 
the you know BBSs and to some degree had some connections into the demo scene, whether it was through mod music or trackers or this. But it was just such a in, in talking about the MS DOS part of it, it was such a really cool thing. It was kind of a subset uh, or almost a subculture that existed alongside you know your gamers, your Windows, your you know your DOS, your productivity, and it was just it was a really really interesting part of it. It's so interesting to me to kind of you know feel kind of how it got there and I always took a little bit of issue with um, the, the, the convenient kind of statement of history for how the demo scene started was with uh, you know intros and crack tros and all that and, and I, I, I mean there's, there's no debating that I, I don't think but I all you know there was a certain point where the, the two started to diverge and if you kind of go backwards into the 8-bit realm um, certainly that's that's the case where at least in the Atari sense, um, you'd, you'd have again piracy was a. I mean, you know, they're kind of the Commodore 64 and the Amiga, the Amiga for sure. But you know, there are many out there who think that just rampant piracy pretty much obliterated the, you know, the Atari platform and to some degree the Amiga platform. And that's just mm -hmm. the reason. That's it. That's the list. Um, I think it's a little more complex than that, but it certainly played a big part. Big part of that, where it was just uh, it was kind of really out of control and. You know, people would copy protect things quicker than you know, and games would get released six months early, and you know, oh, it's just bad news. But um, sure, this this notion of long load times, where you know, to load a, a game on the uh, well, Commodore sixty four is a little fast, but the Atari certainly you were talking about, you know, thirty to sixty seconds of listening to beeps and boops of uh, it was a it was a really slow disk access based system. It's one of the probably the downfalls of the of the platform, and there's a whole kind of litany of reasons for that. But um, so if you put something interesting to look at on the screen, it, you, you really didn't notice it. And, and, of course, game companies do this. I, I chatted about this on Player Missile briefly. Microprose was one of the first. It was a master stroke. They said, all right, we've got the player here for 30 to 60 seconds. They're not going to leave and go make a sandwich because it's not quite enough time. Why don't we advertise our other games? So mm -hmm. that's how I found out about certain other titles was, you know, the actual non-modified loading screen of Solo Flight said, also available for the Atari 800, you know, Kennedy Approach, F-15 Strike Eagle. So, so there's that. Um, from the kind of the more sense of what we're talking about uh, with, you know, someone cracks it and they want to get their name out there. So in the Apple II world, it was Mr. Freeze. Mr. Freeze was a legend, right? So you might see, uh, you know, here's a nice splash screen and maybe it's altered or maybe they've reversed the colors and it's, you know, Oregon Trail, cracked by Mr. Freeze, you know, shout outs to so-and-so and so-and-so. All right. You know, that's, that's all. Actually, archive.org has a great, I think they just have loading screens or something. They have just pages and pages and pages if you want to check them out. The old uh, Apple II high-res ones kind of neat to look at. But, uh, <laughs> and certainly that would kind of follow on into the BBS world of ANSI art and, uh, you know, included NFO files and text files. But um, if, if you kind of agree or if you will kind of, uh, you know, kind of uh, say that the making these introductory kind of loading screens is kind of the start of where, and, and was kind of inexorably linked to, you know, cracking software, that maybe the demo scene grew out of that. Um, I would actually say, um, maybe kind of spin it a little differently and say that this notion of, of doing, uh, of kind of extending the hardware, uh, certainly back to the Atari in the 8-bit days, there, there's, there's, it's not all necessarily just kind of hackers and piracy and that kind of led to it. So there are a couple of really 
I don't know if they're famous, but you know, a couple of, of demos, some that were created internally by Atari, some that were um, a kind of copycat things from, from different platforms that are really quite impressive and had nothing to do, as far as I know, with kind of cracking software. Um, and they all kind of share this kind of callback to the attract screen in the arcades. That was one of the, the things that was so interesting on your, your arcade podcast, where, you know, that, that notion of let's, let's put something that, you know, is bright and flashy and that's going to get, you know, the kid or the grown-up to come over and play Donkey Kong or play Discs of Tron. And, um, you know, I, so I think it kind of starts there where, you know, the thought of let's, let's get somebody here, let's get them interested, and it might be the best aspects or interesting aspects of the game. So almost like a little demo in itself where maybe, um, you know, for the attract screen or for some sort of animation, there was some kind of custom thing done where you might never encounter the splash screen that you see in Discs of Tron in-game. I don't know if you actually do or not. It's been too long since I played it. But it might kind of get you in or pole position. You might have a, you know, it might tweak it to where, yeah, it's probably in-game action, but the actual screen might be a really, really nice sort of semi-digitized photo or something like that. And yeah. Oh, that's a great analogy. So, so I, that's kind of where maybe it's um, maybe I, I'm, I'm trying to inject uh, some sort of um, you know my own kind of personal take on this. But uh, so if I look at it from there, there's the uh, the ever famous bouncing ball, the red and white bouncing ball. That's one of the right. that goes God that goes back to the 50s, right? So that's the uh, the checkered ball, yeah, right? Yeah, and that that was kind of cross platform. Um, you know, some people were like, oh, that's an Amiga thing. Some people are like, oh, no, it's, it's this life. So every platform likes to try to own that. But it goes way, way back. And that was kind of, um, you know, I, I guess it was just... And actually, there was... Uh, I don't think it's available anymore, but one of the first free apps I got on iOS was that. It was that bouncing ball. It was great. It was uh, someone, some hmm. French development company in a maybe a, hey, we'll put this out there and maybe you'll buy our other stuff. Um, I, and again, it's, it's so long gone, unfortunately. But it was the you could kind of drag the bouncing ball all around, and you know certainly was ported to Atari, and you know they put their different tweaks on it where you know the Atari kind of made noise, or maybe it would bounce you know kind of uh, all around the room or anything. But that kind of spinning, um, I always remember it as a red and white ball, kind of you know polygons and, and whatnot is is kind of um, one of the things that that most kind of demo folks know. But um, in in the Atari sense, they actually they put together demos for the, uh, the the yearly computer electronic shows and these were really really well done so the, the one that that I remember most was one that had a walking big robot so like a almost a Robbie the robot kind of thing um, you know big metallic kind of very very nicely rendered uh, walking on a moving scrolling kind of green path in space and you could see the various things kind of animated uh, back and forth and it was uh, it was really really cool uh, and they had uh, kind of this kind of tr- uh, trudging music that would go on. And it would kind of split time. So you'd see that for about 15 seconds. And then it would cut to a spaceship flying through space with this kind of whimsical um, sci-fi kind of like music. And it's, you know, kind of moving up and down and the frame rate is much more. And that was it. It would just cut back and forth. And uh, in the, if you're looking for file names, it, it's called CES Demo. And it's a big executable, I think written, you know, almost 100% in assembly. And that goes back a ways. That's probably, I want to say, maybe 82, 83, maybe 84. And they had a few different versions of those. So if you're looking for just kind of Atari 8-bit stuff, that's very findable. I'm, I'm fairly certain it's on archive.org. If not, it's easily gettable in a Google search and, uh, and whatnot. But, uh, and as far as I know, those were 
done internally by Atari folks and just released at, you know, if you could think of kind of uh, E3 or GDC or one of these monstrously big conferences now, you know, CES was really kind of where it was at. You had CES and Comdex, and I don't know when, if you always had those two, but um, CES used to rotate between Chicago and Vegas, and it would kind of bounce to different cities. And that was, you know, that was kind of one of the big show where, you know, you might have other events that uh, kind of through the years, but that was what everybody got ready for and geared their hardware. Yeah, towards. that was kind of the precursor to E3, yeah. the computer. What was it? So yeah, the consumer electronics. Consumer electronics show. show. Yep. And uh, um, and I, you know, I don't know if they still have if they still do it. I I I don't know if they do or not. I I think it's kind of maybe been replaced by those other ones, but. Uh, uh, yeah, I don't yeah. know. Comdex, I think, is no more. But CES might, might. Let me look it up. It might still be a yeah, thing. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. Certainly, it, it's it's devoid of the panache that it had when it was the only game in town, or the maybe one of the only kind of things going. But uh, that's right. Uh, oh, apparently, so every January in Las Vegas, Nevada. Right? So still a thing. What so do there you, know? you go. It, it might have pivoted more into the actual consumer realm, or maybe it's. Uh, you know, automate your toaster, and I, it could it could kind of have gone away. But it used to be very, very computer centric to where. Yeah, it's more gadgets yeah. now. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, good good to know. But uh, that's amazing. That's been going on for about thirty years right. plus. Yeah, and it's uh, you know, and, and in in history, if you if you look at kind of eight bit stuff, you you'll hear references to things like the West Coast Computer Fair, certainly CES, and they're, they're all kind of similar to where you know they have their roots and origins and. You know, it's you know, certain platforms debuted at uh, certain ones of these. So it's it's neat to kind of have a, I, I like to have kind of a historical sense since, you know, I kind of remember I'd pick up the newspaper and there'd be, oh, you know, Macintosh to come out with a new model at CES or, you know, world right. shocked by something or other and, uh, you know, seemed very relevant and important at the time. But uh, um, but certainly that did drive some, some innovation, some of the early kind of demo scene stuff. But uh, so, so... Oh, so they really were attract mode things, I guess. Absolutely, to attract people to check out their new computers. Yeah. So, and and I think, and and certainly all the CES demos that I've seen in the Atari really did. It would. Oh, and that that I appreciate you saying that. So that also the other little aspect that maybe um, a discussion of the demo scene wouldn't necessarily include uh, in kind of the same vein as attract screens and these kind of uh, um, large uh, CES type uh, events to draw attention to and oh I'm interested in the Atari oh look at what it can do you know it's got more colors and it's got sound and it can do all these great things that these other computers can't since that whole notion of computer wars was such a big thing in the 80s I mean just you know fisticuffs and friends you know friendships were you know uh, you know created and destroyed based on I'm an Atari guy I'm an Amiga guy it all seems pretty ludicrous now but uh, I guess it sort of lives on in the iOS Android world or Sony, Nintendo. Sure, the consoles. I, I guess yeah. people always have something to kind of uh, argue about, though I'd like to think that in at least the vintage computer sense, it's, it's a lot more uh, um, kind of highbrow, but I know it's not. There's still bitter fights that go on about, uh, <laughs> you know, or emulation versus real hardware. That's another one that I just, uh, you know, just say we agree to disagree on that, but that's, you know, boy, that's, that's <laughs> really, that's, uh, that's a whole other kind of topic. But um, sure. So this uh, the, the sense of the um, there's a really kind of in the same token something called the Atari Dealer Demo, which uh, is again somewhat infamous, famous for um, you know it'd be the in-store um, kind of creation for the Atari 400 and it would actually run in a 400, um, and it's it's got 
it's got this uh, beginning song called Disco Dirge, and it's actually it's played at the beginning <laughs> of every uh, a different Atari podcast called Antic, and you'll hear it. It's very very chip tuny. It's a little shrill, but um, you know the. Uh, inevitably, they, they will get feedback that will say, I had to listen to that song for, you know, hours on end in Radio Shack or whatever growing up. Oh, my gosh, I hadn't heard it in 20 years. And, you know, thanks thanks for nothing for bringing that, you know, bringing that back into my into my uh, kind of existence. But uh, it was um, it was actually coded in fourth, which was um, really a kind of um, interesting kind of, you'd get kind of feedback immediately, kind of language that... Uh, had its roots in, in more kind of uh, complicated and, and more powerful computers, but um, they actually managed to, to cram it all into, uh, I think, a cartridge or certainly cartridge or disc to get to run on the 400, which typically had like 16K and was kind of the, the low end of, of what you know Atari was, was, was doing at the time. And this did all sorts of different things. It, it would go and you know, graphics and text and, and, you know, Apple had something similar in these dealer demos where were somewhat common, but it, it brings to mind, and I'm going to warp forward a little bit, to something like the Sierra Christmas card. I, somebody, yeah. remember that? Um, oh, yeah. It, it was just such a really cool thing, and it was, you know, Merry Christmas and from Sierra, and it would go through their games, and, and I kind of feel like, you know, it really that's just, you know, screenshots or whatever, but almost kind of wrapped in the same notion as in a track screen, or almost like a demo. Certainly, somebody. Yeah, I would see these at Radio Shack yeah. and Babbage's or whatever as well. And it, it was just—it was really um, certainly an instrument to sell Sierra software. But to a to a larger degree, you could maybe say if somebody was considering, you know, purchasing a Tandy or something like that, they might come in and see this and think, "Oh, this is you know, this was this was made to show off the graphic and sound capabilities of a Tandy. It just happens to be Space Quest Three or whatever it is." So. Um, oh, definitely. Uh, you know, I, I, I think something like that might necessarily get missed in, in the talking about, you know, a lot of the tropes that people associate with the demo scene. But I think... Oh, that's true. It kind of came full circle, too, because now that you're mentioning all of these things, I'm kind of remembering back to my childhood. Um, there was one, I believe, that was actually made by the Future Crew that was made especially for Radio Shack to show off uh, computers oh, in their awesome. stores. No kidding. And I don't remember if it was a Christmas thing to... Oh, I had it, like, at the tip of my brain, and then I opened up this uh, YouTube video for the Sierra Christmas card, and now this is in the nice. future. Cool. I don't know. You go ahead, and I'll see if oh, I can no, find no, it. Oh, no, no, that's right. all this and, stuff and, to our and show. And I said, so. I, I know this is a subject that you're very, very knowledgeable about, so that, that was kind of what I wanted to start with. And then the kind of the meat of really what, what I remember and, and really kind of admire are the, um, you know, the, the kind of MS-DOS era... Uh, you know, late 80s, starting with the various kind of vector balls type things and then kind of going into the, the groups that, that really were kind of universally admired. So your Fritchie right. crew, your Trite and whatnot. And I would uh, love to hear what you have to say about that because I certainly have my two cents to throw in. But um, since you were, I think, much more connected on many levels to that whole scene than maybe I was, I'd love to hear kind of your thoughts on that matter. Oh, sure. Well, I mean, I became more connected to those aspects of the demo scene because of how impressed I was seeing those for the first time at a friend's house. It was uh, Future Crew's uh, Crew's demo called Unreal. That was my first kind of, uh, the one that really opened my eyes. Um, That was, I guess that was around 1990 or or so. Mm -hmm. 
1991, perhaps. Yeah. Um, I was at a friend's house, a guy named Chris, and uh, lived lived not far from me. Um, and it's funny to think in retrospect, I was always so impressed with his computer and with his gadgets and possessions and stuff. And now that I think back to where he lived, he was like in a like a, a low income, high uh, high population condensed. Uh, area, so I guess that's what his family spent their money sure, on. Sure, sure. But uh, he was always the one to show me like the cool latest and greatest games and stuff like mm. that. He had a sound blaster before I did, and he had uh, he had a, a, a bigger monitor. I think he had a 17 inch monitor. Oh whereas wow! I had a 15 inch or a 14 inch. Nice. Um, so um, he showed me uh, Unreal, and I was just completely friggin' gobsmacked seeing this yes. thing. His, his computer was doing things that I just did not know were possible Absolutely. on a computer, because it had, like, amazing... Like, the, this was the first time that I had heard mod music, mm-hmm. and I had heard a lot of, like, general MIDI kind of stuff and PC speaker stuff um, and frequency modulation, mm-hmm. but these were, like, real sampled instruments, and I'd never heard such a thing before. And not only was it real sampled instruments, but it was playing several of them at the same time and kind of balancing them out with the stereo... Uh, stereophonic sound um, and they were original compositions and they were kind of to some degree synchronized with the action of what was yeah. going on screen and yet it was all rendered in real time. Some of it was like pre-rendered uh, static art but some of it was just pure effects and some of it was like spaceships flying around and uh, in this kind of like a choreographed ballet. Mm-hmm. It was just insanely amazing. To yes. Me. So, and, uh, uh, he, he was also the first person who had a modem that I met and so uh He's the one who convinced me to get a modem, and that's when I got more interested in BBSing and connected with the people that put together stuff like cool. this. So that was kind of my origin to that whole. Scene. Gotcha. Yeah, Unreal was great. Future Crew um, was probably you know they they represent kind of the pinnacle of all this. Probably maybe it's not fair. I mean, Triton was just really 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 good as well. But from from mm-hmm. kind of the U.S. standpoint, these were all groups that were in like Scandinavia. So it was Finland and, you know, they all had, so this is all kind of faraway stuff going on. There were groups in, in North America. Um, and uh, the, the, you'll probably remember the name I, in trying to prep for this. One of them, uh, one of the demos created was something called the jungly kitchen. And I just cannot recall the name of the group. Um, hmm, I don't know this okay. one actually, but uh, so, so there, it's not like the, the U S or other parts of the world were kind of devoid, but boy, it really seemed like, um, the groups, and I want to say Triton had um, non, obviously non-U.S. roots as well. They were just light years ahead of everybody else, and it was uh, um, you know, the, the competitions, and that was. I think that's been a, a, a kind of a, an important thing to mention about the demo scene was the uh, in the in the same way that commercial folks would kind of gear up for modern day E3 or CES, like we chatted about. Um, there would be certain kind of landmark events or get-togethers. And I think Trolls talked about this a little bit on when you guys talked about uh, mod music, um, where at least in the, the one that I remember the, the most seeing was called Assembly. And uh, I, think it's still, right. I think it's still going on, but, you know, you remember... I think so. That's in Finland. There you go. In Helsinki, uh, I think. Th- there would be... It would always be really neat, you know, once Assembly time would roll around. I didn't want to say it was in the summer. Uh, it would be hosted at, uh, like, a, a big school or a university or something. It would be this, you know... People would come from, you know other countries and this big kind of deal where um you know you'd have injected the the greatest technology at the time so when uh when multiplayer or doom was started to be a thing you might have you know a whole bunch of computers you know all so you could have a huge death match of doom or you know when you know maybe high-speed internet was just starting to come about 
you know, you might have this just really, really huge pipe of, uh, you know, great, enormous bandwidth and, you know, kind of all these great things. You know, prizes and, uh, you know, I think in later years, you know, uh, Gravis or somebody would, would kind of, you know, lend their name to say, oh, yeah, you know, we'll sponsor, you know, free publicity for the Gravis Ultrasound or Pro Audio mm-hmm. Spectrum or Creative or something like that. So, uh, but, yeah, that's but really right. it was just, um, it was just a, a big kind of... Uh, a badge of honor, you know, for, oh, hey, Future Crew won Assembly 92 with this. And then there would be intros, so you'd have, like, the the little greeting card, and kind of the same thing, you know, where come to Assembly 92, a Future Crew did that, and, you know. Oh, right, they called those invitros. Yeah. And that was that was the other thing, I, and I, I guess I, I didn't realize this at the time, but this, let's talk about, it's so neat to talk about goofy things of the 90s, but this whole thing of you'd attach tro to everything. So you'd have, like, uh, you know, right. you'd have a, a crack tro, or I remember one of the one of the sort of famous-ish demos called Fish Tro, where it was like, oh, we're just yeah, gonna, I've, I've got that oh, on my own YouTube channel. Awesome. I'll you know, be sure to stick that on there. And, That's a future crew yeah, one, um, it, right? And uh, you know, you'd have uh, you know dev tros and intros and invite tro, and I guess the or the uh, the the demo in the sense that I know it, where just like you said, it's kind of a choreographed module to module. I guess is is called a trackmo, where you have you know semi semi synchronized uh, events to the music, and you have different modules that are you know kind of uh, interspersed mm. with you know a cut that introduces it. And uh, those I'm most familiar with the name Mega Mega Demo, Demo for sure, absolutely. That's like the full fledged, yeah. usually like multi megabytes. Yes, uh, absolutely. Ones like that, um, that that are a few minutes long. And and it's I think it's kind of uh, run almost counter to. Kind of back then, where it was, where space was not a huge concern, where it would just be, all right, well, am I going to spend the time to download this, you know, 2.88 uh, megabyte thing that I'm going to have to keep on my hard drive to do it? Well, of course, it's future crew. I'm just going to get it and I'm going to keep it on there. It's never going to leave my hard drive, and who cares if it doesn't fit That's on a floppy right. disk or whatever? It doesn't have to. Um, I get it via BBS or something like that, which is really with, with about the only choice you had. I mean, if you had, you know, removable media. I guess you could unplug your hard drive and, you know, plug it back in. But, I mean, I, I don't know that you'd really ever do that. And external drives were, you had external tape drives, but they were slow. So, really, BBSing was about the, um, certainly the only way to distribute something larger than, uh, you know, 1.44 and then eventually 2.88 when in the, you know, kind of the age of space-constrained floppies. Uh, and, uh, abs- you actually... You, me- you mentioning this reminds me of yet another Chris from my youth, who is a fellow mod tracker, and he was extremely talented. He was like a classically trained pianist who got into dance music and had really fancy equipment. I went to go visit his house once, and he was uh, pretty well off and had an amazing like little studio. He was like my age at the time. He must have been like 15 or 16 years mm-hmm. old, but he had his own little kind of recording studio. I was amazed that he had a music keyboard that had a floppy drive built right into it, which was a really rare oh, thing that wow. allowed him to input new sounds into it, which was really unheard of at the time. Um, I brought a uh, Colorado... Uh, I guess it was a hundred megabyte mm-hmm. uh, tape, tape drive tape, to his house so I could copy some Sweet. stuff. And he's like, "Oh, I don't use those Colorado tapes anymore. Here, let me let me burn you eight hundred megabytes of stuff, and you can just have these eight tapes that I don't use wow. anymore." Wow! So he gave me a whole bunch how of those. How about that? I think I copied them all over. They're all still in a drawer in my parents' computer oh. room, but I have no uh, drive to copy those off. I really need to resurrect Gosh. those, assuming that they haven't deteriorated. The good old Colorado. Yeah, it was it was wicked reliable. It was kind of slow, but honestly, the uh, a lot of the BBSs of the of the era would put would make things available. So you might have, you know, before hard drives were, 
or I should say before, large hard drives are really prevalent. You know, I want to say my, my 286 12 megahertz, my first real kind of standalone PC machine, I think it had a 40 meg hard drive and it was, you know, kind of sticker shock for just to get that was, was really, wow, we thought we were, you know, 40 megs was just kind of out of this world as far as a lot of storage. How could we ever fill it up? Yeah. Well, of course we did, you know, but, um, but BBS is the time where you're, where actually there was, there was kind of a, I can't remember what the limit was, but like 89, 90, the, the hard drive folks at Seagate and West Vigil hadn't figured out how to break that, that certain megabyte barrier from a theoretical sense. Um, it was how, the, how the, the blocks were arranged. And once they did, storage media became a lot cheaper where you could basically, um, it, was just, it was all in the, kind of the index scheme. And you know, we're talking about, oh boy, um, you know, yeah, the MBR, not the MBR, but like the file allocation yeah, table where, or something it, like that. Something to that degree. I don't want to goof up and, and give the bad info here, but um, there was some kind of high limit at that point, maybe you know, in the hundreds of megabytes. And to go beyond that, you had to go the SCSI realm. So, and that was just really expensive. So, oh, I remember that yeah. allocation. Uh, seeing that recently when I was reinstalling Windows ninety five the there, other day, it asks you if you need large disk right, support. Right. Right. Yes, indeed. But uh, oh, we got a plane plane over here. Sorry. Wait for this to pass over. Sure. Ooh, exciting. Yep. Little real life. Okay, there we go. Um, but uh, so BBSs would in kind of extend uh, what they were offering, whether it was demos or other things. Um, that was uh, that was a really good way to do it, where you had um, BBS software at the time was Wildcat or Teleguard. I want to say some of it even had kind of versions or or extensions you could just get, and it would be um, a very kind of seamless interface to, to do the tape, and, you know, you'd get a slightly different-looking directory, but the Colorado was the, I don't even know, there probably were other companies, but that was, it's funny you mentioned that, that was it. I mean, everyone... If, this sure rings a bell yeah. now that you describe it. I sort of remember seeing, like, menus of files that you could sort of request yeah. to be temporarily yep. copied onto a hard drive, yep. and you would choose it, and then the BBS would kind of hang for four yep. minutes, and then it would say, okay, that's, it's ready to be that's downloaded. That's right, and it was really, it was, oh, it was really kind of brilliant. It was a great, uh, great way to do that if you were, like if you were, you know, if you had the time to spend online. Clearly, you did, because you were going to download some, you know. What else was I going right. to do as a so, kid? So, you know, kidding? four minutes to, 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 to get it on there was, was no problem, and... Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, but, but yeah. So, but now in the if you look at the and I guess this has always been uh, sort of present, but the demo scene competition era, uh, they will. It's a very important and kind of uh, really impressive part of it is they have you know artificial constraints placed. So you want to do this, you got to do it in 4K. So it might be the the 4K competition, the 8K competition. Those are always my, my mind too. Just. So amazing to see. Now, I, I even looked at, they have 256 bytes. You know, what can you do in 256 bytes? What can you really... That's ridiculous. I can barely type my name and, in and that. And to look at how the, the, the schema that we use now to store files, even PDFs, even a really, really simple HTML file, it's, it's insane. It's like 90K. You know, it's just, it's yeah. just kind of amazing. So um, that really ties back into my... You know the, what we talked about at the very beginning, where my uh, my reluctance to uh, kind of give up my aging and uh, held together by bubblegum and and everything else phone, uh, because it will be some sort of a tacit admission that all right, I have joined the realm of you know unlimited memory, unlimited resources, and you know that I'll lose kind of a, a part of myself by doing that. But 
it's very omnipresent in the demo scene that uh, where oh sure constraints and creativity are best yes, friends yes indeed and uh, I always looked at that even as a kid as kind of a positive to where it was a challenge and that's so much of what drives these certainly the competitions but uh, but yeah future mm-hmm. well that was the primary driver I yes would say. yes indeed but I, I had kind of the same reaction to uh, to future crew I remember um, so I, I first encountered mod music kind of a little ahead of actually the first time I saw a what I would consider like a demo in this sense. And the, the first demo I saw was just one of the, boy, it was very common, right? The every, it seemed like everybody did that, that vector ball-based thing where the balls would spin or they would kind of do the, uh, like the science experiment where they'd bounce and you'd you know, transfer the one. You'd spell out words and there might be some sort of parallax scrolling behind it. I want to say that was... Um, that was pretty common. I want to say there were some of the groups. Um, yeah, the scrollers. Yes. Yeah, that was common. Then I think that went back to the cracking yes. days as well. All the greets and stuff were making yep. fun of all the other people yeah. that couldn't crack it before and, you and, did. And, and it's and it, it's but again, it's it's a somewhat tenuous content, but it's a show that or you know some certain that certainly Alan Tully and Chris, uh, your your guest or your host there, co-host talked about. Um, but there were uh, you you could kind of gauge you, you kind of knew what you were getting if you encountered. You know, like a THG or INC or this this kind of litany of groups <laughs> back then. You knew if you saw a Razor or a Fairlight game, you were probably going to get a pretty good int crack trail. You know, you're going to be the music was going to be kind of good, and maybe so. It seemed like there was you know like some of those guys really had some uh, some really good coding ability above and beyond just oh yeah just cracking, and um, so that was always kind of neat to to do that. And then at some point, it really turned in the in the modern day of viruses and malware and everything now anytime and i i probably you know was uh oh i need to run this game how can i do it oh it needs a cd the cd that i have is scratched or or lost in the flood or something how can i do this i remember you know and like oh here's this crack trail or intro but oh man i'm not gonna even load that that's probably loaded with so it's it's kind of sad that you know not only in the copy production sense but it's totally switched to where now i would never dream of running an executable like that or you know, uh, right. from some sort of nefarious place on the internet. So it's it's kind of really kind of switched in that regard. And oh, I have a, I have a terrific. Uh, well, I'm calling my own thing terrific. I have a, a YouTube video of um, I found this. I think it was a .ace mm-hmm. archive that was just in the middle of my mod music archive. And this is a folder that has files from like '94 oh, to '97 or awesome. so in it. And I've I've made sure not to edit any of them so that even to this day all those file dates are still uh, are still uh, as Sweet. they were. So I found this Ace archive and I un uh, I unaced it. I un uh, compressed it to a folder and found all of these old like executable exe and com files that were all like demo scene intros and invites and cracked not cracked but like uh bbs ads and stuff like that so i made a a eight minute or so youtube video of me trying those out one by one so you're totally right i sort of miss those naive days where there would be an executable and you just had to run it out of curiosity without a single thought towards i'm I'm gonna have to check out that uh that youtube that sounds great but i mean certainly there were viruses were there and they were a problem but you would just never think that it would be embedded in your crack tro or uh, your demo. It just, I'm sure it happened, but I mean, it just, it wasn't anywhere. I mean, nowadays it's, you know, it was kind of, you know, buyer beware. You get something from a site that is, is a little bit shady. It's probably got bad stuff in it. But yeah, back then it was just like, oh yeah, of course I'm going to run this. Oh, you know, but um, crazy mod music. So I, you know, absent the, and it was, I wish I could remember the name of the player. It was uh, a DOS based player. It was all kind of text mode. 
And um, I, I do remember the first few songs that I found. And one of them was that, remember that, that Suzanne Vega song, Tom's Diner? Yes, I stole, oh. uh, I stole some of the samples from that song to make one of my so own So that's songs. kind of the one that I always go back to for like the first mod I ever heard was, was that one. And that's a great example of uh, real-world sampled yeah. uh, instruments or voices used in a computer song. So that blew the my the mind. funny thing is, I actually I heard the mod version of that song like a whole year before I heard the actual song. And listening to the actual real song, I'm like, this is kind of a disappointment. I like the, you know, mod version of it is way better. Anyway. Um, Same for me and send me an There angel. you go. There you go. Um, <laughs> so, so there was that. There was the, uh, the ending credits of Blade Runner um, in that kind of awesome, you know, kind of sampled from, uh, there was that one. A couple other ones. Those, those are the two that, that I can kind of readily identify. There was uh, one that was um, uh, one, of the, one of the overtures from Star Trek. Somebody had kind of cut together uh, and, and there, you know, various kind of techno songs. And I'm sure, you know, looking through archives, I'd, I'd kind of find one that was really kind of neat. But so I was a little bit familiar and I had I kind of poked around and, and whatever the, you know, the, the very, very kind of non-user friendly tracker that I was able to get. I was actually able to, to sequence some, some drums together and was able to kind of pick up and, and kind of interface with the mod format pretty easily. I thought, wow, this is really neat. Had no idea at the time that it had its roots in, in the Amiga world. None. Just, but it was, uh, the, yeah, the file too. sizes were small. Um, I remember the first time I heard one that had someone's voice was when I kind of went, oh man, and say, this is really like this is an 8K or a 4K sample. And uh, that was like wicked. That was kind of mind-blowing. Uh, to hear that, yeah. and um, correct me if I'm wrong, but you in the early days you could play mods just through the PC speaker. Is that right? Um, I don't know if that would have been the early okay. days. I think that might have been something that was retroactively okay. hacked together. Gotcha. Because yeah, the PC speaker is essentially I forget like a four kilohertz, yeah. or very very low, uh, very low frequency uh, speaker, okay. just like gotcha. any other. But it took like it took a lot of CPU power to yeah. push four channels of sound into that one channel and, of low quality and, audio. And the trick to uh, that, that access famously used with real sound, you had to get into the bit manipulation and it was really, really, you said, intensive and, um, and, and maybe a little bit uh, kind of off-putting and difficult to do. So I must have, I must have had the, the, you know, the 8-bit sound blaster to, in my kind of dealings with my... I want to say, for some reason, I remember... Kind of first booting up mod stuff on that 286.12 where we didn't have a sound blaster, but you're, you're probably right. Um, either way, it was it was very very neat. And then for me, the actual kind of appearance of demo scene stuff in, in that where I became aware followed shortly thereafter. Um, and I had the same the same reaction to Unreal. I was always kind of a little bit of a battle with me where I, I felt like Future Crew they were they were the kind of you know they were the kings. They were there. They were. They always did good stuff. They were always pushing limit. I always had kind of a soft spot for Triton. I, I, I think is it is it fair to say that if Future Crew was number one, Triton was number two, and uh, and sure. Well, there were. I, I've heard. Uh, I don't know. A lot of people kind of poo-poo Future Crew right now as not the most technically advanced and not necessarily the most stylish ones. They just kind of had the best musicians, mm. and that's sort of what tainted everybody's opinions. Sure. But I th that even if they're not the best, the Future Crew, they're amazingly and, good. And Triton was equally good, And, I and it, it, even though so much of the scene and the whole thing is, is kind of competition-based, I, I, yeah, I always tried to 
you know, kind of watch you know all the groups and take. It was never really that important to me. Oh, this these guys are the best, or those guys are the best. I, I'm sure if I had had a direct link into the scene, I would have probably felt differently. Um, but um, Triton had uh, um, they had you know Crystal Dreams and then Crystal Dreams Two, and they there were a few of their kind of modules or elements that just to this day just left me just completely awestruck. Um, they have uh, one of the it, it might not be my favorite kind of graphical piece, but there's one, I think it's the first Crystal Dreams where they actually have a bit where the music is Axel Foley from Beverly Hills Cop. And uh, uh-huh. it's, like a, it's like a bouncing kind of, uh, I think there's a chessboard and it's just kind of really, really neat. So to actually hear... Oh, I think that was the second oh, one. Oh, sorry, Chris, Crystal right. Dreams too. So to hear like a piece of popular music with their take on it, I'm like, all right, thumbs up, Triton. That was, that was pretty cool. This is something that almost everybody will know wherever they're from. And uh, I just thought that was kind of a, a neat a neat ding where they, they it was, you know, the, the melody was the same, but it had a, the, the kind of typical uh, kind of electronica or kind of techno feel to it. But uh, yeah, I liked one thing that they sort of did in these in these mega demos, which were often, you know, like five or 10 sure. or even 15 minutes long, was that they would sort of make a really long song that was kind of a medley. So it would start off with its own sort of in, unique mm-hmm. themes, but then it might make references or like take whole measures from other songs. Right. I think that might have been the case with the Axel yes. Foley. Yes, uh, that, that's uh, you know what you're right because it, it started with the intro and then it kind of meandered or kind of went its own way to kind of in the general sense of the uh, the demo. That that's right. So a lot of these like Future Crew Triton. There's loads of you know stuff on YouTube. Your your channel for sure. Um, I think your mileage may vary. Emulators, I think the Future Crew and Triton ones will run, um, but that brings it back to just kind of from the technical sense, something very, very interesting that I didn't know and didn't really realize, but uh, we talked about uh, Jim Leonard, and he is actually, he, just in the body of work he's done in the demo scene, he's actually done a recent one. Uh, it's called uh, 888 Miles Per Hour. And the, and, yeah, it's oh, it, amazing. It's, it's so good. I, I almost don't even want to don't want to espouse on how good it is because it's just that good. I don't want to ruin anything. You just need to, you need to look at it. Hopefully you can put it in the show notes. He's got a phenomenal blog. Of but, um, and, and he is very, very free with talking about his, his, his one before this, or maybe it was two before, um, called, um, is it 8088 Domination? I retweeted it when it came out, and that is also just mind-blowing. But he released the source code to that one and has a series of really, like, could be put in a textbook, like, but it's not even fair to really say that. Just unbelievably interesting kind of breakdown of how he did all this and how he how he coded it. How you know why he made the decision to you know use Pascal with uh, with assembler calls and real mode versus it's just it's it's just it's so good. And I know it wouldn't won't appeal to everybody, but for me, it just uh, it was just like appointment reading. I, I couldn't wait to read all that, and it's just. I took a look at that stuff, and I basically heard the exact same sound that we heard when the plane flew over <laughs> your head during this podcast. It's very techy stuff, but there's no doubt that this guy is a real genius and such a fan of this hardware platform. And since you mentioned, you know, real hardware versus emulation, uh, Jim Leonard's made it clear that this is a, a demo that is so dependent on the hardware that it will just not work under emulation. It makes so many, like, direct... Uh, like interrupt vector calls and IRQ calls, like and uh, and and comp. Or I, I yeah. don't, I don't, I'm using no, 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 no. Anyway, no, but no. It's 
very dependent you're, on you're hardware. You're absolutely right. And and to be fair, the the most recent one that won it, uh, the 8088 miles per hour, it won this big competition in the like old school category or whatever the, but the whole thing was he wanted to do it on a in an IBM PC 5150. So it's the 4.77 megahertz. CGA graphics. It's your boilerplate IBM PC from way back. It had nothing. It had, you know, no sprites, no, um, no more than four colors, you know. Um, this is a PC, well, I had an 8086, which was a little bit newer and a little bit faster than the 8088, if I'm not mistaken. And I would play, like, a CGA golf game. It was sort of, like, if you remember, like, um, Lynx 386, yeah, yeah. for example. Um, I played, like, the progenitors mm-hmm. to that. Uh, one was called... Maybe... Uh, what's now? Mean 18. Oh, oh, I love Mean 18. Go Accolade. It was a oh, great game. Oh, it was so good. So, as was common in those days... Uh, your 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 ball would land somewhere, and it would slowly draw the scene in front of you. It would like be a stripe of land, and then another stripe of land, and like four more stripes that mean a hill. And then it would draw the trees one by one, and then it would draw clouds one by one. It would be like a good ten or fifteen seconds to draw one I, scene. And this eight hundred eighty eight miles per hour is, uh, demo is doing like three D models with shading at like. 20 frames per second or something. It's just, I don't know how on earth this is even possible um, with such a, a meager little if, machine. It's incredible. If you draw inspiration from, you know, from, from people who, you know, are free with kind of sharing how they did things or content creators or game designers or, you know, the, the Francisco's and Ben's and, and Brian's of the world who create music and games and art, um, you, you look at what Jim Leonard has done and you want to learn assembly. You want to say, you know, certainly this is someone who's very, very good at this and who's been working on this for years and years, and it was one of his stated goals. He always wanted to win one of these competitions, and now he has. But it's just, mm. it's, it's inspiring. And, uh, and this, this, you said it, I cannot, Mean 18, to, just to digress for a second, I, I played that on the Apple mm. IIGS, and it was so good. But the Apple IIGS had 256 colors and, you know, um, you know, three twenty by two hundred or or thereabouts, something like that. I cannot. Mm, and I played it I in CGA. I cannot imagine playing it in CGA. And even then, so four colors, and it's still rendered horrendously slow. Uh, oh. It kind of looked. That game kind of looked like. Uh, from I don't know if you guys had this in the states. Maybe not. There's a we had a chocolate shop called Laura Seacord, and they had this one kind of ice cream called Super Kid mm-hmm. ice cream, which had like every color. It was like a rainbow colored ice cream, but they were sort of the pastel mm-hmm. colors. It looked like Super Kid ice cream. Oh my game. gosh! The magenta, cyan, yellow. It was oh, really ugly. Oh, good grief! I, I think I we we have something actually locally where I live called Rainbow Cone, which I think has kind of the same same deal where the colors are all like here's the pistachio is this kind of faded green, and the you know the New York cherry is this weird kind of yellowish color. So uh, perhaps mm-hmm. kind of similar there, but uh, but oh man! So anyway, the, so in my kind of affinity for constraints and everything, I mean this. Um, you know, Jim Leonard's demos are, are just great, great examples of this. And the, the, the title of the new one, that one that we've been talking about, the, the, the tagline is, We Break All Your Emulators, just like you said. So mm-hmm. he's very much, uh, um, he's like, it just, you just cannot run it in DOSBox or any, it just, you said, too hardware specific. And they take the CGA mode and he basically just completely blows it up. Like, you will not, if not for actually seeing the footage. Um, you know, somebody would, would, would probably say, oh, there's no way this is on a, an IBM PC with CJ. And, sure. so, and, and when they went to the competition, they, they actually had to, he had to record it, you know, and I think he used a, 
maybe not a 51-50, but a 51-something, maybe a 51-60, which is a little more common, but same exact guts, just easier to find or something. And they to kind of prove that, yes, this is really running. This is the old hardware um, kind of thing, but uh, just really, really, really good. And, um, and the, the, the technical part of it that I had no idea this was present, and it's actually illuminated in one of his, uh, one of his postings, is the, if, if you watch 8088 MPH, uh, it will, you know, in, in following the mega demo or the trackmo kind of thing where it will, there'll be a pause in between the, you know, from module to module, and you'll have some text. And in his case, it's bouncing kind of text that goes, you know, uh, now for CGA, you know, you know, four colors, or, and then it's, you know, then it does this kind of awesome kind of, um, kind of fade in of, you know, 1,024 colors. But I didn't realize until I kind of looked at the structure of a demo like Unreal or Second Reality or you know, any of the Triton ones that the pauses that were there, that where you'd have, um, you know, often it might, in the game world it'd be like a cutscene where, you know, you get, uh, maybe it, it calls back to, you know, similar music where you have, okay, you get the, you know, do, 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 something like that, where you're going to hear that in every kind of thing and you're going to have the title of the next piece whether it's like spaceships or i don't know um you know chess or something like that or whether it's just greets or or some sort of a weird kind of an in-between uh effect so like in um in in keynote or powerpoint you know you, you're dissolved or your your animation your transition that's the word i'm looking for. Jeez. yeah um so i never realized it but what's going on certainly in the future crew ones and and in, in jim's demos as well is the computer behind the scenes is pre-rendering like crazy. It's it's rolling routines. It's you know throwing textures on there. It's getting it's doing these computations. It's doing all of this kind of behind the scenes, almost like in in the theater world where you have uh, a scene change and you get maybe some sort of you know soft shoe stuff to where the actors and actresses are changing costumes. They're putting set pieces in place. All kind of behind the scenes. The curtain opens and then you've got your you know now where you had a house. Now you have a park or something like that. So. So it's a mechanic that's, I mean, you know, rude. I mean, it goes way, way back. But I had no idea growing up and, and seeing these, even until, um, until Jim made reference to how the, the demo is structured, where they have, like, kind of a loader. So in his case, there were a few people that worked on the demo. In Future Crew's case, it was the same, where, you know, you might have a team of five or six people. You might have three or four coders. And, you know, let's say... Uh, geez, I can only remember the musicians. Sorry, Future Crew, but let's just say um, Skaven is responsible for you know the beginning part and the uh, you know the plasma part, and uh, Doctor Benkeman might be you know have you know this one or that one, or in like Jim's case, you know Hornet might have uh, you know these. So it, you know it, it might it right. might say that, but they needed a way, whether it was way back when or now, to kind of work on things and then be able to drop it in. So. I guess maybe you could compare it in the in the modern development age to like source control, GitHub, forking, that sort of thing. We have a lot of people working on projects, or maybe even just a few, but needed kind of a unified way to be able to say, okay, here's your stuff. You know, it's a wrapper where you you can just kind of say, put this module here, and you know, and okay, go forward. But I had no, and Future Crew, I know used the same thing where um, it was kind of you know load based, and there were just millions and millions of computations going on to allow for the seemingly real-time presentation of what was happening. And it was, but everything that could be pre-compiled or pre-rendered or pre-done 
what was was done. So it was kind of like a a little bit of a behind the scenes, you know. And, and sometimes it would be like ten seconds of transition. Sometimes it would be longer. It would be a kind of a long time where they'd have it couched and you know displaying text where you'd be like, okay, come on, let's get on with it, you know, so on and so forth. But it makes sense looking at especially second reality. The most intense or graphically impressive pieces have kind of the longest transition times to where everything is just getting blasted away behind the scenes. And oh, by the way, there's just enough processor power left to play the music and kind of do the uh, you know keep the keep the the user or the player entertained. Where whether it's a scroller or you know some sort of a something. So I but I had no idea that. And maybe this was no. Maybe I was just a. Uh, you know, a dummy. I didn't realize that that mechanic was really there to kind of keep the churn or the pipeline going and allow for... Well, I had no idea either. That's really so, fascinating. So that, that's something I learned recently in, in reading the kind of uh, post-mortem of, uh, of Jim's, uh, Jim Leonard's 8088 MPH. But yeah, so really, really neat stuff. Really, really enjoyed that. But, um, but yeah, so I, I always had a soft spot for, for Triton and uh, it was always neat to see, especially the... Um, I guess in kind of the same way with like game competitions, like they have ma- in the AGS world, you have mags and one room one week where there's a certain point where everything is released. So maybe you have your competition and then the next day or at some point thereafter, all of the entries will be available. And uh, it was always fun after mm-hmm. one of these big, uh, they call them compos, right? So after assembly, then you'd get, you know, all the, the demos would kind of find their ways onto BBS. You'd be like, oh, here's Fishtro, here's this one, here's that one. And, you know, maybe there was some controversy. Oh, how did Future Crew not win? Or how did Triton win? Or, you know, something sure. like that. But it was just kind of a, a really interesting kind of subset or backstory to, because it was always a dream. I'm like, boy, it would be really cool to, you know, jump on an airplane at, I don't know, 15 years old and, and go to Finland and go to one of these things. But it was just, it was never achievable. It was, uh, you know, one of those where, you know, fun, kind of fun to dream about. Wouldn't that be neat to, you know, camp out or roll out the sleeping bag and, you know, be kind of part of this. But it was just something that at sure least way. I was able to experience kind of through, you know, and, and that back then it was like a text file or maybe, a, you know, some sort of a, a BBS thing that had, uh, hey, I went to this and this was great and, and whatnot. Actually, when I was in college, um, so sort of in 96 to 2000, early on, 96, 97, uh, a friend of a friend was from uh, Wisconsin and was going to UW, University of Wisconsin-Madison for computer science, which is a fairly high-powered um, computer science program. And he was actually a member of a demo group called Guild. And they, they, they were, uh, you know, somewhat of a, of a player. They went to competitions. They did a lot of the 64K stuff. So I did have a kind of a, a, a very kind of almost surrogate link to kind of the later, you know, the mid to late 90s kind of demo scene era. But, uh, but yeah, I just, you know, if really, if, if nothing else, if you go with, with Future Crew and Triton for the encapsulation of the MS-DOS kind of demo scene era that I like the most, it's just, there was something so compelling. I don't know how many times I watched those demos. It kind of appealing in the same sense to how game demos could really hook you in. Like I remember the X-Wing demo or, and we've, people have talked about this before, or the uh, Beavis and Butthead uh, virtual stupidity demo, where it's just immersive enough mm-hmm. to where you really wanted to explore and get everything out of it. Or you get three levels of something, like uh, one of the first Commander Keens. I think you only got a few levels, but that was all you needed. It was like, I, I didn't, you, you know. Sure, but unlike the games, the demos weren't interactive. They weren't any different each time that's, you saw that's them. That's right. But 
they were just like infinitely rewatchable, yes. at least in my so, case. So, I mean, I must have watched, you know, Unreal and Second Reality. I mean, it was just like if I was, if I had 10 minutes to kill, I'd like turn off the lights and try to like crank the sound and I would catch something that I didn't see or hear a sample. And they were just, they were just, you know, even the long ones were just always felt like they, they kept my attention where maybe if it started to wander where I'd be like, ah, there would be something kind of awesome, like some drum hit or some kind of cymbal sound or something. I'd be like, oh man, that's right. This is, this is really, really cool. So the, the nuance and kind of the, uh, really, if, if we kind of look at it from a large scale production, it was really a production. It was like, you know, this is, you know, it, from start to finish, whether it was the greets or, you know, the loading screen or all of it, it was all kind of important. You know, some, you could very easily just control C or escape out of it and go back to the prompt. But, uh, but yeah, it was just a, a really kind of, uh, really kind of a neat and kind of awe-inspiring piece and uh, kind of happy that obviously with, with the kind of the gym stuff and I mean the demo scene is, is, has exploded. I mean it, it's very much still uh, you know kind of present today and it, it, I, I looked at um, like one I maybe it was assembly from several years ago and what they were able to do it was almost too realistic too mind-blowing it was so incredible that I'm like you know I've really got to stick to the 4K, 8K stuff, because it's like the 4K and 8K stuff now is more similar to kind of the processor-intensive, you know, future crew kind of unreal second reality stuff that I remember. And what... Yeah, well, they're no longer brushing up against the limitations of yeah. the platform unless they make some really stringent restrictions, yeah. like 4K, 8K, 64K. And, and to one degree, like, I, I wish I could remember the, the name of the, uh, the group. I mean, it's, it's this kind of old abandoned building, and it's just this really, really beautifully rendered, you know, kind of smooth kind of transition, but uh, fortunately or unfortunately, that isn't, I mean, that that's kind of present in games where, you know, you can look at uh, whether it's a sports game or, you know, a game like The Last of Us or something like that, where it looks just really, really darn good. You know, you, you, you almost don't know, like in like a basketball arena or a ho hockey stadium or something, you know, if you've got one of the high-powered consoles or even a PC hooked up to a you know, like a TV slash, you know, monitor, or HGTV, whatever, you almost don't know. It's, it's just like, I, do I have the, the TV paused and are the, you know, are they getting ready to face off or is it a game? It's really, at a glance, it's hard to tell if you don't have menu screens up or anything like that. So, um, so I kind of contrast that with, um, well, and, and I don't want to feel like I'm dominating conversation here, but um, you remember, you remember ray tracing? That was kind of a thing. Um, yeah. Oh, I, I remember the uh, teapot. Yeah, that's right. So th that was another thing I, in doing research for this. I, I found out and I've forgotten. But uh, so let's see. You could trace the origin of te of that to which 3D program you use. So it's like the teapot was 3D Studio. The duck was like Lightwave or something. I can't remember. But there's there's a uh, very yeah. so yeah. You had teapots and ducks all over the place. That was kind of a, a cool thing. But uh, so that was where that was where you like scan the surface of an object and you kind of get a representation of like all of its 3D extremities mm -hmm. through like represented by simple 3D models. Right. Something, Something like, like that. that. And, and I, I remember, um, you know, kind of the early ray tracing as I think it was and boy, I'm going to probably get the tech wrong in this, but um, in almost kind of a surreal like. Uh, almost like an Archer McLean, kind of like a blob of mercury or like a kind of, you know, a very round stuff, kind of circle-based. So uh, might have been more of a raster thing, but 
um, very, very early on, yeah, you'd get that, that would be just like a still shot in early demos where you'd get this, uh, they, generally they'd have like, and it would kind of be near the end, you'd have a couple of really awesome ray trace, like a moonscape or something like that, would just be really, really like, oh God, that's great. It would have these uh, before Unity and before dynamic lighting and all any of this, you'd have uh, like a metallic sheen to it. And be like, oh man, how'd they do that? This was really... Um, right, reflecting yeah, something in the exactly. background. exactly. Bouncing around. When, yeah. uh, when really, maybe you had a very, very early version of Photoshop, but for the most part, at least I know in the Amiga world, it was Deluxe Paint. How I mean, Deluxe Paint was, was uh, awesome. Yeah. And I, I, I encountered it on the Apple TGS, but that was the go-to like artist tool for, for many, many, many years. And I, I'm sure people still use it um, to this day for, for low res stuff. But, uh, um, so. but that, that was, that was kind of a, a cool thing. So to compare and contrast how impressed I was at, you know, some, some kind of early ray traced image to now the, the modern kind of demo scene where it's just this mind blowingly realistic or, or just intense kind of perfectly fluid, you know, textures, just everything is, is so good. Um, on the one hand, to, to, to kind of make something immersive or interesting, given the fact that you can do all this in, in real time and, and don't have to worry about color cycles and processor cycles and, and all that, is, is almost more challenging. So I'm not trying to take away from any of that. But on the other hand, um, if you stick with the constraint or hardware limited play where it says, all right, you have to do a you know, an Atari ST demo, you have to do an Atari 8-bit demo, or it has to be a Commodore 64 demo, and it can't be, you know, one of the hopped-up ones. It's got to be, like, one from 1985 or something like that. Um, to me, that's, that's ultimately more satisfying. But it, it's nice. They coexist. Uh, certainly referenced by the recent 8088 demo, you've got the old-school category, you've got the, you know, other categories, and it's just that's what it is. So um, seems to live mm -hmm. on and, uh, and really, really great. Um, but... Uh, so in kind of looking at this, I thought maybe my kind of personal feelings, my kind of limited kind of hooks into the demo scene, maybe that will be something that might be worth chatting about. But um, I'm sure there are, whether it's, you know, just data on the Internet or a kind of history or timelines, I mean, certainly to, to try to, to wrap my hands around the entire thing is just, you know, almost... Um, almost impossible, but uh, what, 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 what were your, and I know we're kind of getting a little bit close on time here, well, any kind of, I'd be curious, um, uh, you know, kind of any, anything about, you know, whether it was recent demos or, or maybe a favorite of yours or music. I, I know the only reason I ask is somebody made reference to the I am not an atomic playboy kind of sample, and that's just such a, such a cool yeah. thing that, like, maybe, you know, a very small subset of people would kind of know, but... Um, Right. That's, was that from Panic? I think so. I think? Yeah, Future that was Crew. Future Crew. Mm. That was. Uh... I used that sample in one of my songs. Oh no too. way! Oh, that's. Awesome. Yeah, just as a reference to oh, the the that's, Eternal Future that's Crew. That's great. Oh man. Yeah. So I don't know if we're just looking for any. Well, I've got one story, I guess, that I okay. can tell, which is, I, it's more about mod music, but this is an odd story, I guess, because it involves a real life gathering, and I've told a couple of stories like that. Uh, I guess it was my oh trolls was our very first guest as a matter of fact and it was for our very first to uh, uh it was it was for our first topic uh, with a guest that we talked about mod music it was all the way back in episode okay. four um, but one story that I didn't tell was for a local mod musician who was part of a group called the Cosmic Free Music Foundation KFMF. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and they were kind of unique because they were a, an old school American group, whereas most of them were uh, Scandinavian or Nordic oh, or whatever. Cool. Um, they started off as a group actually called KLF, the Cosmic Loader Foundation, nice. because they started off with loaders and demos and stuff like that, but then wanted to break out into more music. So they called it Cosmic Free Music Foundation and free music because of the price of the music and also because they would only release in open source formats for the world to benefit cool. from. So I had great respect Definitely. for that. So uh, a strange quirk of that group, because they had a lot of different members, was that they actually had two different members by the name of Mental Floss. Oh. Um, one of them went, uh, so they, they couldn't both be called that. So one of them, uh, went by the short name Floss and the other guy who was a uh, Torontonian and was the subject of my story. Uh, his name is, uh, Andrew McCallum. So he went by the name Andrew M. Nice. But, uh, in their releases, they both went by mental floss and I forget how they differentiated between the two. Um, Although, if you listen to them, then uh, it was obvious whose music was whose. So, uh, our mental floss, my mental floss in Toronto, Andrew M., he uh, did a lot of, like, uh, techno rave kind mm -hmm. of music, and he went on to do a lot of live shows, often with mod tracking software and just manipulating them in real time, and later on with more hardware and doing DJ stuff, and uh, some interesting combinations of uh, both of them. Um, he, at one point, released a, uh, a cassette tape, with just a bunch of his mod music uh, in a format that you could listen to while you were away from your computer. Um, so I had to I had to buy this because I was already a fan of the sure. guy's music even before I found out that he was a local. Um, he, he had a real talent for bass lines in particular. I loved his, his uh, groovy uh, house music mm -hmm. kind of bass lines. So um, he told me I was ready to order one by mail and he said, oh, I'm just in downtown Toronto. Why don't you come and pick it up and we'll hang out for a little while. So I jumped at the opportunity for this. I think he was selling his his cassette for like $16 or something, but I said, I'm such a big fan of your music here. Have $20. Nice. I'm sure oh, that's I'll good. listen to it enough that it'll, uh, that it'll be, uh, it'll pay mm -hmm. for itself. And indeed I, I, I pretty much wore it thin. I listened to it a zillion oh, times. Awesome. His tape was called, uh, brain. What was it called? Brain matter or something okay. like that. Shoot. I can't remember exactly what it was called. Gray matter. matter. That's what okay. he called his tape. So, um, we chatted and chatted, and he told me a little bit about the rave scene, which I would become involved in later mm -hmm. on. But uh, before I was into that, he invited me to a little pr uh, party that was happening at his uh, a party room in his residence. He went to Ryerson University in Toronto. Um, he was putting together a little party that he was calling POTS, P-O-T-S, which... Um, as uh, network, uh, computer networking people might recognize, is an acronym for Plain Old, Telefi Plain Old Telephone right System, nice. which is also known as PSTN, the Public Switched Telephone cool. Network. Um, and this was in reference to an album that both of us happened to really enjoy by a group called Future Sound of London. Oh, yeah. They had an album called ISTN, yes, which was they... a very early uh, streaming yep. Uh, a very, very early example of streaming radio yeah. from like 1992 or 1991. Yeah, it's from way back. Very Definitely. old school. One of my favorite albums of all time. Phenomenally Definitely. good. So I went to this little uh, party and met some, I was like four years younger than anybody else, but I met all these college people and all these other people who were into the demo scene locally. And he played a little live show. I don't know how live it might have been because I had listened to his tape so many times that I knew his songs note mm -hmm. for note and I didn't detect a lot of variations, maybe just a little slider sure, sure. there. Um, and there was another DJ. He was just 
DJing off of CDs, which is something that I didn't even know was possible. I had only seen mm-hmm. records. And uh, he was notable not only for having a great taste in music, but also because he only had one arm. Oh, wow. And he did a terrific job of, uh, of uh, manipulating stuff uh, without any fault My whatsoever. Gosh. So that was a really cool thing. So of all the stories that I could possibly tell about the demo scene, that was one that I guess not a, it's a kind of story that not a lot of other people would tell. So that'll be my closing story, I guess, for Out, demo scene. Do you outstanding. Have any cl- do you have any closing uh, stories that you'd like to tell? I, you know, I think that's it. Uh, you know, this um, kind of just maybe just to mention that um, we talked about it a little bit, but the a uh, lot of the really, really good memories I have of the BBS era, which for me was really, really three separate ones. So, you know, BBSing in the Atari days, the 300 baud, the Apple kind of 1200 baud, which was Apple Inc., which later became America Online. I didn't get too much into the actual Apple BBS scene because I really didn't know how to find it. It was weird. It was with the 2GS to do, to actually connect to a a plain old Apple II board. There were millions of them out there, including AE lines or ASCII Express. I just didn't, I didn't grow up with that. We got a 2GS in 87 and had been primarily Atari before then, so I kind of missed the boat on the actual true Apple II BBS scene. But then the, the one kind of in the same way that I have just this great affinity as many of us do for you know the MS-DOS kind of golden age, um, probably most involved and able to kind of participate in the you know BBS scene of that era. And demos were a big part of that. Um, whether it was, you know, just these coming from these far-fung places to get them to the States and distribute them. And of course, Free Crew had a BBS. It was called Starport. And I, I never called it. I'm like, oh man, this would, you know, I'd be on the grounded list forever if I ever dialed Finland or something. I actually would... Yeah, I know. It was like $3 oh my gosh, long it, distance from North America. Long distance is bad enough, which I, I rarely and never did. Gosh, a, a, a call to like a suburb, you know, 20 miles away was outrageously expensive. Not to mention a different state or, oh my God, a different country. I wouldn't even know how to punch, you know, ATDT country code. Wouldn't probably they even, you know, would have taken some some research there. But... You know, always saw it advertised, but never actually did it. But it was, um, I just want to maybe just mention that, that that was uh, a big component of kind of the presence or maybe enjoyment or nostalgia looking back. It was, that was uh, really the principal way that, that, that files were transferred. And it wasn't all piracy. It was, you know, there were some, it was demos or, you know, different programs or text files or whatever. But uh, that kind of, it wasn't just all crack games. And, and that certainly was... A part of it, but um, but so that was uh, that was probably I think the last thing I wanted to mention. Otherwise, yeah, been good shape. That was great. That was great. That was great. Well, you you really do bring fantastic context and insight into all of these topics that we've discussed today, and I really really do appreciate you uh, coming on the show and and sharing your enthusiasm and your uh, and your knowledge about this stuff. So thanks a million for for coming. Oh, back. not at all. Love to have oh, you I, I would love to come back. Thank you so much. Hopefully, uh, people enjoy. Uh, maybe our, our take on the demo scene. And uh, of course, you know, the, I feel like I've just barely scratched the surface. There's, even if it's just a, a casual YouTube view, um, I, I love it when, when, you know, people say, oh, play this game, like, especially Ben, like play Doom or, you know, play Psychonauts. Or I'm like, you know what, look at these demos, you know, check out Unreal, check out Second Reality, check out Panic, check out Crystal Dreams and Crystal Dreams 2. And if you do nothing else, check out, Jim Leonard's 8088 series of demos. Domination, oh, yeah. um, 8088 miles per hour, 
it's it's a it's a it's just great. If you do nothing else, please please do that. Um, you will be a better person for it, and uh, hopefully as in awe at that an old machine can do that, um, certainly as uh, as I was. But uh, but yeah, thank you thank oh, you so sure. much for having me. I'm sorry I'm kind of running up against time here, but uh, really always enjoy the chance to uh, to come on and love the show and uh, hope to uh, oh well thank you so to much. maybe join you again in, in the future. Oh, unquestionably, would absolutely love to have you back. You've you've outlined a whole bunch of topics that you're uh, authoritative on, and they're of of uh, the utmost interest cool. for this podcast. Great. So, thank you so so much for sure coming. Sure thing. Um, is there anything you'd like to to uh, plug or give people a chance to get in touch with you uh, or anything before we I, adjourn? I, gosh, I, I feel so uh, so embarrassed. I still don't have a website, but I'm uh, I'm CGO Apps on Twitter. Um, you know, I have a couple of very very basic iOS apps that are out in the wild, one for the iPhone, one for the iPad. If you want to take a look at those, great. Um, otherwise, uh, I think that's that's about it. So um, I appreciate that. But um, really enjoy the podcast. And uh, like I said, hope to uh, hope to join you again real soon. All right, ditto. Well, th- thanks again for coming aboard. And folks, we'd love to hear whatever you have to tell us about uh, your experience with uh, the demo scene or any of these kind of scenes that sort of uh, orbit around that uh, realm. Um, you can reach us on the web at squarefm.demodulated.com by email at squarefm at demodulated.com and on Twitter we are at squarewavesfm. And so, until next time, we wish uh, you, Chris, a very happy flight back onto uh, mainland USA and uh, all of our uh, listeners, uh, all the best and uh, warm fuzzy feelings and uh, I hope you dream of teapots and uh, <laughs> Tauruses and other simple geometric shapes that's right sounds great thanks so much Brian talk to you soon okay a, a great pleasure talk awesome. to you later thanks again okay bye bye bye
Thank you. 